Aloha, everyone. Welcome to the Ram Gad Pod. And uh, no, this voice isn't Jason Economo. This voice is Lawrence Carnicelli. And I am stepping in for Jason because the guest today is Jason. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> so welcome to your own podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. This is, this is really fun. I think this is the most relaxed I've been leading up to an episode because if it goes horribly wrong, I'll just blame you. Right. And it's, it's perfect that way. Yeah. And I think that's kind of true for the entire job. So like, that's exactly least, for the first year, at least you could, you could have done that. Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. It's Lawrence's fault. I say, of course I, I didn't know this. Lawrence never told me or, or Lawrence set it up like this. Right. It's, it's, it's all Lawrence's fault. And I got to do the same thing for Dave for a while. Mm. <laughs> so, so this is actually kind of cool. Cause I, you know, you and I, um, God, I think when you interviewed me, it was a two and a half or three hour chat or whatever it was. And we kind of talked about it then. So I think that'd be kind of fun just for people to get to know you and who you are and what you're about. And, um, and so I did some of the cursory, uh, uh, I guess, research that you, actually you did it for me and then sent it over, which I appreciated. But um, I'm going to start after reading all this stuff and looking into kind of just a little bit of your history is how the hell are you here? Mm. <laughs> like, how did you get here? You're a smart MFer with a, like I'm looking at your history and everything like that. It's just like, it makes me feel like, wow, I was so underqualified for this job to see your qualifications. I just want to make it clear. I didn't pay you to say that because <laughs> that sounds like something that I would pay you to say. Um, you know, it's just luck and, and I don't feel overqualified whatsoever. I, I feel maybe just, just about the right amount of qualification. Um, I didn't have any formal training in, in government affairs work at all. And honestly, when I applied for the job, I didn't realize that it was a lobbying position. Like yeah, my, first, my first week, I, I kind of turned to Peter and I, I said, you know, Peter, uh, do I have to register as a lobbyist? And, and he goes, yeah. That's what you do. It's your job now. So, so it was a little bit of a surprise. So I can't say that I was super qualified for it, but I took a very strange path to, to get here. Um, well, give me the last, I'm interested in just the last step. So you were working at a local law firm here in Wailuku. Mm -hmm. And were you calling, looking for jobs? Were you just sort of like, do you, do you have like, did, did LinkedIn ping you? I mean, like, how did you, because in looking at it, I mean, in all honesty, you don't have any lobbying background, you don't have any political affairs background, and you don't have any real estate background. Yeah. Now, but you're a really, really smart dude. So, like, how did you even hear about the job, see about the job, and end up submitting your resume and ending up here, I guess? is. So, it's not entirely accurate to say that I don't have a background in some politics or, or political affairs, just because by virtue of my work in Uganda, uh, being a, a Peace Corps volunteer, you kind of get to make your own job, and a big oh, okay. part of my job involved lobbying. Okay. Uh, but it, it was really for education purposes. So, when I was in Uganda, my primary assignment as a Peace Corps volunteer was to be a teacher, a secondary school teacher. and I found being in the village all the time kind of stifling. It mm. was it was really solitary and really lonely. Mm. And so I kind of spread my my sphere of influence a little bit wider. And when you're doing international work, it you're selling yourself constantly mm. to try and convince people that you have their best interest in mind, that you're not some right. greedy outsider. There's a lot of parallels here. Sure. People do not trust you 
when you're new to a village. It took a year before anybody really wanted to get to know me because everybody sense. just assumes and Peace Corps two years? Peace Corps two years. I was in Uganda there. for four years, right, though. Right, I saw that, yeah. Um, okay. So I, I kind of increased my sphere. So then I went into the, the biggest town closest to me, and I started doing a radio show. And then one of the directors, the program directors in Peace Corps, had this idea, and she was like, you guys should do spelling bees. Think about, think about starting a spelling bee, me and, and hmm. um, my, my close friend at the time. And as we got into that and we were exploring the idea of spelling bees, one of the things that we realized was that when you are literate in your local language, it makes you far more capable of becoming literate in English. And mm. Mm. A lot of the, the issue in Uganda was that English is their primary language since they have like 56 other different languages. But kids were never getting literate in their, their local languages. The local languages were sort of deteriorating because people weren't putting effort into, um, you know, sort of standardizing them, making dictionaries and, and spreading, you know, set grammar for them. So, mm. so as natives were, were growing up and leaving their villages and going towards the cities. They were losing their languages. And in my area, I learned a language called Lumasaba, and that was, it, it is still a dying language. I think mm. less than a million people speak it worldwide, and there were different versions of it depending on what side of the mountains you grew up on. Oh, wow. Okay. And so me and, and my, my partner at the time, this guy named Lauren Evans, um, we, we started figuring out, well, let's do local language spelling bees, and let's do it in a bunch of different languages, and let's make it a part of the Ugandan curriculum. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started going to meet with different public officials, different folks in the, the Ministry of Education, and talking to them about our idea, and getting buy-in from USAID, and getting buy-in from Peace Corps, and the embassy was getting involved, and that was my first, I didn't know it at the time, but that was my first foray into lobbying. Mm. And we got it a part of the curriculum. We created the structure. We worked with the newspapers to get word lists distributed to kids. Um, you know, ultimately, it was, it was a really great project. And we were able to pass it off to a couple of Ugandan guys who had started their own English language spelling bee uh, nonprofit. And they kind of folded that in. Mm -hmm. And now they've got their own, you know, my language spelling bee empire thing going on. Cool. Uh, yeah, so we left it in safe hands. But, but that was my first um, work with government officials. And by virtue of that, I was in Kampala, which is the capital city a lot. And when the embassy and Peace Corps and USAID knew that they had volunteers around that they can make do some of the work that they don't feel like doing, but also give the volunteers <laughs> some experience, they would have us do stuff. So when there was a function for the spelling bee and the ambassador was invited or the director of, of Peace Corps, you know, I would be the one writing the speeches or doing you know, just the bullet points as far as what they need to know and briefing them, uh, writing press releases for the, the spelling bee and on behalf of USAID. Uh, so, so I got to do some of that. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I guess I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. I was just being a good volunteer. Right. Uh, how I got to RAM from, from practicing law, mm -hmm. you know, I, I joined Peace Corps because I kind of did not like the idea of being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. After I finished law school, I was working in my friend's law firm that he had started up, and I was like, 
oh, this I'm not ready to do this full time. Mm. So so I signed up for Peace Corps and, and got got my adventure. And then when we moved, I, I met my my wife, who is now my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. I met her serving in Peace Corps. Mm. Oh, cool. And she's from Maui. She grew up in Haiku. I did not know that. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, so that actually answers one of the questions that I was going to ask you later, so uh, cool. Yeah, so, so my, my wife, Lantana, we started dating in Peace Corps, and she wanted to come home, and so that was a really easy sell uh, to, to come to Maui. Sure. And I'd never been to Hawaii before, never been to Maui before, and I said, okay, but I, I really don't want to take the bar again. I, I definitely don't want to mm. take the bar. And we were here for a month and I was working for her dad as his like ground crew. He's an arborist. Mm. And I went to a cocktail party for Lantana and her, her staff at the college. And I met um, the wife of, of Peter Horowitz, who own, who's one of the, the partners at mm. Merchant Horowitz and Tilly. And we, we hit it off and, and she said, you know, my husband, they just, um, uh, one attorney just went off on his own, so they have a, an extra office, and they might be looking for somebody. So you know, mm. you should you should talk to them, just have lunch with them, and, and see what's up. Mm. So I I made an arrangement to go meet these guys for lunch, and I had sent my my resume beforehand, but I really just thought it was like a networking thing. Mm. I was actually studying. I had the book in my car to learn how to be an arborist. So so I was actually <laughs> going to go that path. And about halfway through lunch, I realized, oh, this is a job interview. And yeah. I had actually gotten another job offer earlier in the day. And it was for, uh, I'll just put everybody's business out there. It, sure. was, it was at Hawaii Public Adjusters. Um, and I, I told these guys, I said, hey, I think this was a job interview. If it was, you should know I have another offer on the table and I, I have a week to get back to, to this guy, but you know if you're gonna offer me something, then do it. And so they got back to me, we went back and forth, and um, I worked for, for Merchant Horovitz and Tilly for two years, mm -hmm. and Dave Merchant and Peter Horovitz and Lauren Tilly are some of the, the best mentors that I've ever had, as far as just stand-up individuals with the right ethics for me. I did, I did some work with Dave Merchant Mm. about gosh this had been around 2010 11 something like that love that dude yeah great guy that was my favorite part great guy. of that job was having the office right next to dave oh okay and he's he's a political junkie too mm -hmm. and this was mm -hmm. during the election cycle so so him and i are just full-on ranting at each other whenever we get a break and it was it was difficult because i loved the the people in my office but I really quickly realized I am not enjoying being a lawyer. Got it. It, it, was, it was tough for me because mm. most of being a lawyer is not the stuff you see on TV. It's just right. sitting in an office and banging on keys. Exactly. And the billable hours aspect of it, Yay. I hated because it really detracts from your, your uh, personal relationship with your clients. Because if somebody's on the phone with you and you're, you're trying to, to help them through a, a difficult life scenario, because that's when people contact lawyers, when they have a, a life scenario that they can't necessarily tackle themselves. Right. And you're trying to work with them through that, at the back of their mind, they know they're going to get a, a letter later with a bill that 
by the tenth of the hour, it, it tells you how much time I spent working on your case. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't want people to dread talking to me uh, or having to spend time right. with me. And I don't, and, or and know I'm, that they're paying you for your time. I yeah. mean, like literally, where it's like, okay, you and I are sitting here, and if the clock were ticking, it has a different energy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm somebody that likes to take my time with an issue mm. and consume it and research a lot. Mm -hmm. And that would annoy clients because sure. if I'm spending, you know, like Dave is a great example. Lifetime of, of a legal career, uh, super lawyer. He can knock out a motion to dismiss in, you know, an hour or two. He's, mm -hmm. he's done it. Mm -hmm. For me, the same motion might take, you know, three, four, five hours, depending on the level sure. of research that I'm putting into sure. it. And so that's why they build me at a lower rate than, than the other attorneys, and they expected that it would take longer, but it still kind of stinks. You know, it kind yeah, of messes no, but with it makes, you. it makes sense. And um, I had just been getting to my office later in the day and, <laughs> and coming home a little earlier and taking a little longer of a lunch break, and my wife, finally said she's like you're not happy like right. you are are clearly not happy doing what you're doing you need to look for something else mm -hmm. and so i had applied to various positions mostly legal positions mm -hmm. because it's it's rare that that a non lawyer position opens up that's really fitting for for an attorney right and when I saw the government affairs position come up and I saw the description of, of what's required, I was like, I know how to write, I know how to communicate, I'm already addicted to the news, like, mm -hmm. that's what I'm spending my, my time, what I'm supposed to be working, doing, just reading the news. I know law, I know the, the interplay of, of local law and state law and federal law, I, I get these things, and, mm -hmm. and these are things that I really enjoy. And that aspect of, of having a more um, interactive job where I get to, to participate with people as opposed to behind the scenes, mm -hmm. uh, just drafting things was really appealing to me. And at the same time, I'd also applied for a job. There was an opening um, in council services oh, right. too. Yeah. And I, I got a call about that job to test for that one. And I, I had to turn it down because because I'd already gotten the offer from Ram. And then, um, oh God, who was it? Um, Maria Zelinsky? Uh, mm -hmm. She was still in council services, mm -hmm. and, and, and she said, oh, you're going to be good for RAM. That's, that's going to be a good position for you. Take that one. And I was County like, Clerk oh. is open. Yeah, County Clerk <laughs> is open. <laughs> um, well, you know, most lobbyists are attorneys. A lot of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, especially when you start getting up to the higher levels. Like in D.C., it's almost all of them. I mean, it's mm. almost 100% of them in D.C., um, not necessarily at the state level, but a lot. But anyways, it's, it, it is really more of a job that's geared towards an attorney. So, yeah, I mean, the fit is there. Yeah. But uh, so anyways, that was kind of coming to now. But let's rewind. And, and actually, um, based on our last conversation like this, um, let's let's like rewind all the way. With, tell me about your mom and dad. Oh, man. Like, we're going to start before you were even born. I'm just, I did notice that you're wearing a watch. So as far as the bling, you've blinged up. I since did. You weren't wearing a watch last because we talked about how much, you know, because of your dad, you want to wear the bling. But um, so anyways, kind of, you, you got your, your crazy Greek dad. You got your Sicilian mom. Um, so kind of tell me a little bit about your dad. Tell me a little bit about your mom, how they came together. 
So my dad is a, a real character. He, he is Greek from Greece. He came over to America in the 70s. How old was he? Um, he was a young man then. So he was born in 53. So he came over in 72. So, so he was okay. like, yeah, 20s, uh, mm -hmm. early 20s. And um, he had a background playing professional water polo and also oh, cool. a background in the military. He had been in the Greek Royal, Royal Air Force, but had served in the Navy with underwater demolitions. Mm. So he was kind of a tough guy, very strong. And he was a chef. When he came to America, he worked in restaurants because if you're Greek and you come to America, that's what you do. <laughs> you work in restaurants. <laughs> I think if you, if you have uh, any... In, today, in today's world, he'd have a food truck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have any Greek uh, eth ethnic background, I feel like you're, you're about 50% more likely than the general population to have worked in a restaurant Got at it. some point in your life. Right. We're just called to it. Right. And he worked in restaurants. And he was, he was a, a chef by the time I was growing up. And, uh, yeah, just a character. Very charismatic, but very service-oriented. So he was involved mm. in, in the, the Freemasons um, as far as charitable work. And, mm. and um, throughout my whole life, my, my dad was, was very geared towards the importance of education, even though he had not finished high school uh, mm -hmm. because of conflict in Greece. And, and he was also very, um, he placed a high importance on service mm. because he had served in the military. And, and ultimately my mom ended up serving in the military too. She was in the army. Oh, and uh, cool. they met when my dad came over and was working in restaurants. My mom was a waitress at the time oh. and they met and they, um, they sort of had like, uh, I don't know. I, it, it's difficult to say. It was a crazy restaurant-based relationship. I've been in those. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's like when the restaurant closes at like 1 o'clock, all of a sudden you walk across the street to the bar. Next thing you know, you know. Yeah. Like, but at and, the time, my mom was also a single mom. So, so she okay. had been married once before, and, and there was uh, issues with, with her first husband. Um, the family lore goes that he had faked his death or something because he comes back later on. <laughs> When my mom and oh, dad are awesome. actually married, and he contests it because they, they sh he shouldn't have been pronounced dead. I think they were, um, as you mentioned, my mom's Sicilian, mm -hmm. and I think they were mobbed up. Um, and uh, yeah, they, he hit the kill switch somehow. Like, okay, he's going to just disappear. Yeah. So, so we don't talk too much about that part of my my mom's. That would be awesome to get like too much wine in your mom and just like really try to like pull it out of her. Like, okay. My, what really happened? I mean, before you pass away, I gotta know. You yeah, know? <laughs> they've they've shared some of it, but I'm not gonna share it on this podcast. Oh come on! <laughs> um, and and so yeah, my my mom um, ultimately she she worked uh, now born in Sicily. Her mother was I think I think both of her parents might have been born in America, um, but their parents were born in Sicily. Got it. Okay. Um, so, or, or there's, it, her mother might have been born in Sicily. I'm pretty sure her dad was born okay. in America or, or came over when he was, was very young. And just so people know, like, listening to the podcast, Sicily is not Italy. No. Like, it, Sicily, okay, and technically it's part of, 
you know, the Italian, you know, nation as it exists now. But Sicily is not Italy. Sicilians are... It's a whole different world. Very prideful people. In in fact, my, my... a little bit sad. My my grandmother on my mother's side mm-hmm. never really identified my brother or myself as her grandchildren mm-hmm. because our father was Greek. But my sister, her father was Sicilian. So so she's there she was go. like the grandchild there and me and my brother were just kind of you know for lack of a better term bastards sure. in in her mind. Sure. So yeah, there's that. So we weren't very close with that side of the family. <laughs> That's the short yeah, way of saying that. Okay. And um, it, it was largely my, we, we grew up on Long Island. Okay, uh, that was giving you my next question, what part of the world? So Okay, so they met in Long Island? They met in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, And okay. my mom was born and raised in Brooklyn. Okay. And uh, after my brother was born, actually it was after I was born. So I have a... An, half-sister that's 10 years older than me. I have an older brother who's six years older than me. Mm -hmm. And then I'm the youngest. I'm the baby of the family. When I was born, they moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, where we spent most of my childhood. We, there was a period when we lived in New Jersey, when my mom was in the army. That was like when I was in like second, third grade. Okay. We, we lived in New Jersey at Fort Mammoth. And my mom was a nurse. That was during Desert Storm part one. So, She had enlisted in the army to to serve during Desert Storm. They needed you know people what? to and train that seems nurses. Like, like okay, there's Desert Storm was what thirty years ago. Like it doesn't seem like you think. Oh, Desert Storm. Like for me, I'm going like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But it's like no, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So Great anyways, name for a war too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's just like, it is just contextually, it just seems, you know, maybe there's people listening to the podcast that weren't alive then, but, mm. it, and it's the same as saying, you know, the Spanish American war to them or something like that. Yeah. But it, it's just all ancient history, but it, it's um, fairly recent. So anyways, go ahead. Yeah. It, and so, so we lived in Jersey for, for a bit and then moved back to my childhood home on Long Island mm-hmm. where I finished up in high school. Um, man, it, it was good growing up. It was largely lonely. My brother realized very early on that my family did not have money to send us to college. And he realized yeah. this because my parents sat him down and my father said, I do not have money to send you to college. <laughs> you can go into the military or you can go to community college, uh, whatever. Just uh, you cannot depend on us. <laughs> and Is that so, how your dad Yeah. Said? Oh, that's a good one now. Okay. So, uh, and my mom sounds like Fran Drescher from The Nanny. Like spot on. <laughs> yeah, we can't afford to send you guys to college. So you got to do it yourself. You know, make something for yourself. Um, <laughs> It was very entertaining growing up with I them. would love to, to, at some point in time, hear you have a conversation between your mom and dad in, <laughs> using oh. those two voices. We could do that for you. We'll, <laughs> we'll set something up. And, and right now, it would probably be a little hard to switch back and forth. But, and but if thing, you practiced a little, it would be fun. My friends didn't believe that my parents really sounded like that. They thought I was, like, hamming it up. Uh-huh. And then whenever people meet my parents, they, they start laughing, like, cracking up once my parents say anything. Like your parents are like, caricature. Oh, my God. He was, he was right. This is exactly how you sound. Um, um, and so you got to go make something of yourself. we got to go make something of ourselves. So my brother 
he he was largely out of the house during high school. He went to a military high school, and and then he went to Annapolis, and and he was like oh, wow. the you know the firstborn son of this this Greek Italian family who wow. had gone to the Annapolis. Naval Academy. So our house was covered in in Naval Academy memorabilia. They were cool. super proud of him, and as so, well they should be. Annapolis oh, yeah. is a big deal. Annapolis is a big deal. Well, so is the Citadel. Yeah, less of a big deal though. Citadel's right. still state college. It's, it's it's. I don't know. The Citadel's still pretty cool. Yeah, it's still pretty cool. That's why I went. I guess that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, when it came when I was about sixteen, my um, my dad sat me down and he had this talk with me, and he you know it was, it was like, my son, you have the blood of Odysseus in you, <laughs> as a Greek, <laughs> you nice. must leave the place you are from. And you must travel the world, and you must see other things. And you know, like he gave me this like amped up speech, and and so I guess that was my my cue of, all right, I guess I got to leave New York to go to college. Cool. And um, seeing my brother and, and how celebrated he was going to Annapolis, I, mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to Annapolis. I'm going to go to the Naval Academy. So mm-hmm. I studied really hard, um, did great in high school. Which wasn't necessarily difficult. I went to a weird, like, fundamentalist Lutheran high school where we learned, like, um, we learned creationism in our science classes. So the earth is like six to 10,000 years old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that didn't jive so well when I was taking AP physics. It's like, (laughs) hey, um, in this class, they're telling us this, but. You know, there's clearly background radiation that suggests a whole big bang and, and all that jazz. Right. But I did well in high school, did well in the SATs. I, I thought I was a shoo-in to go to Annapolis. And we had this, this the last step. after I even got the congressional nomination to go to Annapolis. Wow. And the last step was they send a blue and gold officer to your house. It was some guy that, that was in the Navy. Um, he was a dentist. And... They send him to, to interview you to, to give you the, the final checkoff. And this guy was late to my house, uh, like an hour and a half late for, for the appointment. He shows up and he starts talking about how um, impressive this other kid that he met earlier in the week was. Oh, and he mentions that I have to get my, my math scores up on my SATs. And my parents put out this whole spread. He he doesn't take anything to eat, nothing nothing to drink. Which you know, Greek Italian family, yeah, you take yeah. something, right? And then at the end, he's he's leaving, and he you know, my dad like put out his hand to to shake it, and the guy just he didn't shake it, and he he starts walking down the uh, the driveway, and I was a bit of a headstrong teenager, mm-hmm. so I go, hey. And he turns around and was like, you're not going to shake my dad's hand? You, you showed up late and you're not even going to like shake his hand before you leave? And the guy comes back up the driveway, shakes my dad's hand, shakes my hand. And, and he looks me in the eye and he says, better work on those SAT scores. And he goes back to his car. Well, the, my SAT scores from the most recent time come in right after he leaves. Yeah. And so I call him and I say, hey... Um, my my math score went up to um, like 100 points. So it's a 650. Mm-hmm. And my English score, I, I got in the, the top 
percent. I, I aced the English portion mm -hmm. of the SATs. I said, do you think that's good enough? And he goes, math is still a bit low. Get back to me when you take it again. And, he, you know, that was the, the end of the conversation. At that point, I knew I'm not going to Annapolis. Right. It, it was all pretty clear, especially since I knew what my brother got on the SATs and I, I beat his score. Um, oh. and, and so I said, okay, well, that's, that's, that's whatever. I had done so well in the SATs that I was still pretty confident that I would be able to get someplace good for, for a college. Mm -hmm. And when you apply for, for Annapolis, at least at the time, what they did was they, they had you list all the other schools that you applied to. Mm. So I wanted to show them that I was interested. So I had also applied to the Citadel mm -hmm. and I had applied to like Northeastern and Boston University, Cornell. And for all those schools, I had applied for Army ROTC scholarships and Navy ROTC scholarships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's getting closer to, to time to figure out where I'm going to college. I'm getting um, acceptance letters and, and also explanations as to like the, how I'm going to pay for it all. Yeah. And what it came down to was I could, I could go to pretty much any of those universities on an ROTC scholarship, mm -hmm. but the only university that offered me a full academic scholarship without me having to, to jump through extra hoops was the Citadel. Mm. So they called me and they said, hey, you can, you can take the ROTC scholarship, but really you could sign a contract with them anytime. We'll All let right. you come here and see if, if you want to do it for free. You won't have to sign a contract with any cool. of the branches. You just get to be a student. We'll give you a stipend uh, to pay for, for your uniforms and everything else like that. Mm -hmm. And if you come here, we'll put you in the honors program. And so, I went to your Greek dad must have been so happy. They they were pretty happy. We we went on a my mom and I went down for a pre-nob visit. They invited me for a pre-nob visit. Your your freshman year at the Citadel is called your knob year. Okay. Because they shave your head and, and right. you look like a doorknob, but really it's it's more they're referring to the, the fact that you look phallic. Um <laughs> and with all your, your shaved heads. So um, so we went for this pre-knob visit, and it was a weekend that an ice storm hit the East Coast. Oh, and it took us forever to drive down 95. And everything's covered in ice, and there's feet of snow everywhere. And it's miserable. But we get to South Carolina, and we take the exit off of 95 to go to Charleston. And it's like 75 degrees, and it's oh, beautiful, right. and it's sunny. Sold! And we get to Charleston, and it's just gorgeous and there's like you know beautiful college of charleston girls everywhere and nice. and then we go to the citadel and man at the citadel they really ham it up during those pre-nob visits mm. they they make it a point to just yell and scream and get as intimidating as they can to scare off um, wow. right. uh, as many folks as they can they take pride in that but but also i guess to to figure out who's dumb enough and crazy enough to to actually be lured in by that Right, right, right. And of course, it was me. Um, I was, I was, I saw it, and I, I was just like, I, I can take this challenge. This right, is good. So that, that's my curious. Is is was it like, oh, you can't scare me. I'll show you. Was it you know the challenge? Like, what was it about that that hooks, you know, Jason? It was the challenge. It, okay. it, I think that's really what it was. It was part of it was. I wanted to do something tough like my brother, you know, visiting him at Annapolis and seeing that, mm -hmm. that was appealing to me. Um, 
to to show my parents like you know I could do this too to show my brother. Did, I could did do you this too. did you apply to any of the other services? Like, I didn't. Know, like which say like let's go to Colorado, let's go you know, wherever. And, I don't know why I didn't. It okay. was it was just sort of Annapolis or bust, I guess, in my mind. Okay. And um, well, I'd, I'd been up to West Point, New York, mm -hmm. and that was miserable. And I, I wanted to leave New York. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to go further north. Got That's it. not, got it, got not it, got in the it. cards for me. And um, but the challenge of the Citadel was. So it says I think you, you ended up in ROTC though, didn't you? you still yeah. Ended up in ROTC, anyways. Yeah. So everybody at the Citadel takes an ROTC course. So you all have to do ROTC. Okay. And you all have the option of going into the military after you're done. And I, at the end of my freshman year at the Citadel, I had gone to the Air Force ROTC folks because I was an Air Force ROTC. And I actually said, I would like to sign a contract. Hmm. And I had an injury halfway through my my freshman year that was going to require me to get surgery over the summer mm -hmm. and they basically told me that I was broken goods and to come back next year after my surgery and and see if if I if I qualified with them to sign a contract okay then. yeah and that that soured me um, when I was getting closer to graduating I went to the army and the Navy and I said, hey, I want to go to law school, but I'm, I'm willing to sign a contract with you guys mm -hmm. if, if you can guarantee me a slot in law school. Mm -hmm. And they had told me, we'll send you to law school if we need lawyers, but we don't need lawyers right now, or it'll depend. And you know, they gave me oh, one of these very okay. non-committal sure. answers. We'll see. And I had already gotten into law school. So I was like, I'm not going to turn down, you know, I, I went sure. through all this trouble to apply, you know, take the LSATs, apply to law schools, get into law school, and you guys are, are not going to let me go because you don't need lawyers right now. Got it. So if I take that, that ROTC part out of it then, so what, 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 I guess, what did you study at the Citadel? What did you graduate in? I was an English major. English major. So why, why law school? Like what happened, in, in, you know, that said, oh, I'm going to go... Is it that you had, you know, your brother went to Annapolis and you had to one-up him and go to law school? Is it? No, it was, it was really, this is a little embarrassing. I had a girlfriend at the time that I was, I was at the Citadel with and she wanted to go to law school. So we were studying for the LSAT together and we were going to go to law school together. Mm -hmm. And I got in and she didn't. <laughs> and that relationship quickly deteriorated. But but during that whole process, it's kind of like my girlfriend's a vegetarian, so I'm a vegetarian. You know, yeah. so my girlfriend's going to study for you know the LSATs, and so I'm going to study for. The There's LSATs. a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> I um, just real quick, this lady in my office is going to go on this like I don't know ten day fast or something like that. And I hear her talking <laughs> to one of the other ladies in the office, going like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm going to do this ten day fast." And so-and-so, this guy that she's dating, quote-unquote, you know, is going to do it with me. And all I could think of, there's only one reason why that guy's going on a 10-day fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, so, so back to the LSAT. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so, so during that time, I, I had also, I had my, the advisor from the English department and from the honors program, both of those advisors were pushing me to pursue a PhD in English. Oh, well. But what it really came down to was I had this English degree 
and I could either pursue a PhD in English and not really, you know, make much money necessarily because the odds are you're not going to make money with a PhD in English. But, you know, the stereotype for lawyers, you know, lawyers make money. Right. And so my whole mentality was, well, I need something that can can make me some money. Got it. So I'm going to do law school. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up in law school. And I had been in, in mock trial since I was in junior high and, and mm-hmm. through, through college. Mm-hmm. So it, what that really means, though, is I had mentors who were lawyers the entire time. So, right. so all through junior high and high school, um, Glenn Stevenson was this local attorney who was my mentor. And, and another local attorney, Jim McCarrick, this is out on Long Island, they, they kept on sort of uh, fostering this this mindset and this this way of thinking to be like an attorney. Well, and I think that that's true because I mean, is I think the, at least I haven't been to law school, but I think that that's one of the pieces of it. Yeah. Is you're just taught to view things in a certain way. You're you're taught to process information in a certain way. You're taught to express those things in a certain way. Yeah, and that's why I love the LSAT as an entrance exam because mm-hmm. I don't think I've I've ever seen an exam that's so um, well suited to, to get at a certain mindset. The LSAT mm-hmm. is logic games mm-hmm. and reading comprehension. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much all it is. Mm-hmm. And the reading comprehension is because you do a ton of reading and you got to do it pretty right. quick because there's massive amounts of reading and you need to be able to, to get key points and identify things. So, right. so reading comprehension makes sense. And then the logic games, is it, it's a brilliant method of testing because you you have to study you have mm. to learn the rules of yeah, these you games just, you can't wing, you're yeah you can't just wing it yeah and and there's a way with which they all kind exactly of, yeah. and so it forces you to be disciplined and it forces you to get out of an emotional way of thinking about things and focus on you know this is a structured game a structured universe that i'm playing in with these words and i need to to get at the the result the right way mm-hmm. um and, and, you know, I had, had those attorneys in high school and then throughout college, uh, this, this Charleston attorney named Dennis Rode, uh, he was my mentor and, and he did the same thing, just taught me to te- think a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had taught me basic legal research. Like he really went above and beyond in, in guiding me. And so it just made sense. It was a natural progression to go to law school. So you go to law school, you do well. You go do lawyering, and that voice of your father, I'm assuming that voice of your father from when you were 16 years old that says you got to go see the world is buzzing around, and we end up in the Peace Corps. Like, okay, so sort of like, how, how, do you, how, do, how, does, how does this kid that has these mentors that thinks this certain way, that's good at doing that, and, and chose law school because of money, mm instead of say something that you were really good and talented at, suddenly go, Peace Corps. You know, it, um, it was actually even less straightforward than that. <laughs> <laughs> My, the, the Citadel is, is hugely service oriented. Mm. And then the law school I went to, Charleston School of Law, their motto, their motto is pro bono populi, for the good of the people. Mm. So they were very service oriented. And I had done a, a fair amount of volunteer work while I was in law school as well. And after law school, I took the bar. 
And the first time I took the bar, I failed it by four points. Mm. And I had a girlfriend at okay, the time. Okay, four points out of 50, four points out of 1,000. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know the scale. Okay, so, so the scale, the, Charles, or the South Carolina bar gets a little bit weird because you don't actually know the scale. Um, there's a lot of essays, mm. and then there's the multi-state bar exam. Mm. And you can, you pass the bar, if you pass the multi-state bar exam, and you pass like four out of the seven essays. Mm -hmm. I passed the multi-state bar exam, mm -hmm. and I passed three out of the seven essays, um, but the fourth one, I had failed by four points. Okay. So, so that's what it really came okay. down to, four points on one essay. Wow. Um, and that was pretty devastating, but I actually had a lot of people who were in the South Carolina legal community like call me, you know, practicing attorneys and even one judge, and mm -hmm. they were like, hey, we heard about you not passing, take it again. You're going to do fine. Mm. It, it happens. I failed the bar the first time. You know, like I heard a lot of those stories. Got it. Um, and so I, I, it was at that point where I kind of felt really down and I mm. kind of wanted to run away. Mm. And I, I knew I had to take the bar again and I did and I passed it and then got licensed in South Carolina and that's when I was, when I was practicing a little bit. Uh, but at that point when I wanted to run away, I was talking to my brother. And after Annapolis, my brother had gone into the Marines. And so hmm. I, we were having a conversation. I was like, I got to get out of Charleston. I just need something new. Uh, I think I'm going to enlist. Uh, what do you think of, of the Marine Corps? And he goes, Jay, you would be a fine Marine. You know everything you need to know to, to be successful. But knowing you, I think you would hate being a Marine. He said, if I had to do it over again, or if, if I were you, I would look into Peace Corps. Mm. He, he said, I, I had a classmate that I was close with, and her parents were, were both in Peace Corps. They own a resort in Fiji and a resort in Alaska now. They're the happiest mm. people I know, and they have nothing but, but great things to say about their time in Peace Corps. And that seems like it's more up your alley. And mm. he was absolutely right, mm -hmm. because the... The structure and discipline of the Marine Corps, I'm sure I would have been fine with it after the Citadel, but uh, Peace Corps was, was much more up my alley. I, I don't know. I, like, the, the, the thing that, when I'm going, like, okay, you in the military, I mean, yeah, I, you probably, I mean, you're smart enough to be able to manage it, but the thing that I'm thinking about is that 16-year-old kid that said, hey, you didn't shake my dad's hand. Like, that kind of thing doesn't go over real well in the military. Yeah, that was beat out of me by then. I don't know why, but I mean, that's kind of like, to me, shows an essence of who someone is, though, is to be mm. able to look at someone who's an authority figure, who is, holds my fate in their hands, and to go, hey, you just disrespected my dad, is a big deal. And so, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, so far in this, that, that, that kind of comes out as far as kind of like just who you are. Um, so the military, yeah, you don't get it to do a whole lot of that. Hey, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and. But see, Peace Corps guys, that's more of a piece. See, in my, in my thing is going like, okay, Peace Corps to go like, no, wait a second. Let's, let's look at this a different way. Hey, no, 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 no. That's, that's not just, you know, acceptable. Mm. whatever it just is you know it's like you get like as you said earlier you get to make up your job right you get to do what you do you get to get, be creative you get to challenge the status quo 
So it just seems like that's kind of like your your brother probably saw that in you and was spot on. Absolutely. Yeah, he he figured me out. Um, he had me better figured out at that point than I had myself figured out at that point. It's typically the case. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful for it. And you're it. what, early 20s at that time, yeah? Yeah, I was in my, my early 20s. This was yeah. back around 2011. Um, I was born in 86, so, okay. so yeah, the listeners can do the math on that one. Yeah. So my, my I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, oh, I'm 20 years older than you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, that's how I, I made that choice. And, and Peace Corps made sense to me because of the service. Um, you know, the lack of structure was, was beneficial to me. Just the getting out, you know, doing the Odysseus thing. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. out and find some adventures and, and cool. make a life. Figure Very it cool. out. And so now the, the Peace Corps just sends you, you don't get to choose, right? Now you do. Now you, you get to, to choose. And when I applied, they let us have preferences. Okay. And my one preference was I don't want to go to the Middle East or Africa. But why? The Middle East, one. Well, 2011, the Middle East, I don't think I'm wanting to go to the Middle East. Either. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sorry. Just like, even though you, you physically. You look like you could fit in. Me, I would not fit in at all. And you know, was, six foot three white guy with you yeah. know blue eyes. They'd be like, oh, oh, look at the American guy, um, where you could at least you know you could pass. And part of the reason why I didn't want to go to the Middle East was because I can pass. Oh, okay. Because I, I was worried about you know, I don't know, getting labeled as uh, you know getting on the wrong watch list or something like that. Because right, you know, if I'm in the Middle East and I'm making friends with people, who knows? I. I it wasn't a very well thought out thing. They just asked me, and, and that's what I said. Okay, fair um, enough. Africa, I don't know. I think like a lot of Westerners, like a lot of Americans at least, I, I had a pretty negative like view of, of Africa. Mm-hmm. And as like a dangerous place where you're going to get sick and and the food not being great. You know, that was that was one of the things that played in my head a lot. Like I remember episodes of like Anthony Bourdain's shows where you would go to Africa and there was always like poop. And, and it just wasn't, <laughs> I, I thought, I love to eat. I was a foodie at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, they said, okay. And they told me we, we might have a, an opening in, in China or Mongolia for you. So, so I was like, oh cool. great. And then it ended up, they said, no, we can't send you there. Wait, we'll, we'll find something for you. Mm-hmm. And you, when they say wait, you don't know how long you're going to wait. Right. And I radio silence until it's not. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And I was waiting for like a year. Ah. And in that time, I had been working at my friend's law firm. But, you know, I was able to, to keep that job because we were friends. But I couldn't get like a real legal job because when people know that you're going to leave at any well, time. And that's, and that's just it. I, I would think that not just getting that job, but I would think <clears throat> part of the hard thing is you've already checked out. Yeah. Right. Like you've already left. So mentally every morning you don't get the phone call and you have to go to the job. It's, it, I mean, that's, that's gotta be one of the worst parts. Yeah. And luckily because he was my friend and because it was his law firm and, and I had helped him start it while I was still in law school, I was, I was like, you know, volunteering, working with him as an intern. Sure. Uh, it was, it was largely part time. Like I, mm-hmm. it was really flexible. It was more just to, to supplement my income. 
And at the time I was working as a personal assistant too, for a personal assistant service. Mm. And so that was mostly like occasionally cleaning somebody's house or organizing their house or, you know, doing clerical work. And then my main, so- my main source of income was waiting tables at the Charleston Crab House. All right. And now we're talking about that's how you find out who people are and who you are. Yeah. So, so I was, I was kind of hustling at the time, working odd jobs and, and waiting tables. And it got to a point where about a year of waiting, I said, I got to do something different. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to be leaving Charleston at some point. My lease is, is coming up. Let me do it on my terms. So I sold everything, gave away everything, and decided I was going to either move to Asheville, North Carolina, okay. or I was going to go out to Oregon where my brother was. Okay. And he, he had just bought a house, so, so Oregon won out. So I went out to, to Oregon. He bought a house in Gresham, and I, I was just sort of being a bum helping him fix up his house, landscaping, construction type stuff. And um, I applied for a job at a movie theater uh, that was right down the street from him. And they, they didn't take my application. I, I handed in the application. You were overqualified. They were like, no, we're, you're going to leave. Like, this right. is for a high school kid. And I was right. like, come on, I, I love movies. And I'm just <laughs> looking for something. And uh, so, so they said no. But luckily, I was only there for about a month when I got a phone call from Peace Corps. And they said, hey, how far, are you, how firm are you on that no Africa thing? And I said, I'm not firm oh, at all, baby. Off the table. I, I want to go to Africa. <laughs> I was like, that is, I was stupid when I said that. I, I am for real. I mean it. Send me anywhere. And they said, that's what we like to hear. We'll call you back in a few minutes. So... They called me back and they said, how would you like to go to Uganda? I said, I would love to go to Uganda. Where's Uganda? So <laughs> we'll send you a packet with information. Uh, so you leave in a leave. month. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Done. So, uh, so that's, that's uh, I ended up going to, to Uganda. And I was supposed to be like a physics teacher when I got there. And I... I was like, I can't teach physics. I have no background in math or science. All you got to do is know more physics than the people you're teaching. That's what they told me. And and I said, (laughs) listen, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. If I have a student that's even slightly more advanced than I am, then they're going to fail their exams because I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm I'm not going to live with myself that way. And they said, well, we we brought you here to be a physics teacher. If you're not going to be a physics teacher, then we're going to send you home. And so I called their bluff. I said, okay send me home and nice. then they said well maybe we have an opening for an english teacher someplace so <laughs> so they called around it's like we already paid to have you here yeah exactly like... so so i was an english teacher and and they they found a, a school that that had actually requested an english teacher and declined the offer of a of a math or science teacher so they called them back and they said well if you still want an english teacher we have one for you oh cool um and yeah that, so uh, so you're in Uganda doing that thing, and you meet this pretty girl from from Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. So so we, there are many, not many, there are a few stories from my, my pre-service training. When we first get to country as a Peace Corps volunteer, you're, you're with your whole group of volunteers that came in, your cohort. Mm-hmm. And during, How many, roughly? Uh, we had... Let's say fifty okay. in our group, roughly. Okay. I think I'm I might be inflating that number. It's kinda by thirty to fifty. I mean it's not twelve. Yeah. It's not twelve. It's like thirty to fifty. Okay. And um I 
I was single at the time and a little bit of a playboy. I was I was I was a little bit of a party boy at the time. Okay. Um, As you should be at your early twenties. Exactly. That's what you do in your early twenties. Thank you. That exactly. But <laughs> there were a couple of instances during this pre-service training where I saw my wife and I could not help but voice my my affection and admiration for her. And one time did the Greek come out? Is that the what Greek it was? came out? There were. Was it a little bit greasy, like a little bit uh, Rico Suave-ish I don't, coming at her? I think it was just... We're going to have to interview her. Yeah. She, We're going to have to get her side of this. She story. would be fascinating to interview. <laughs> um, so I, I often tell her that the, the moment I fell in love with her was we, we were broken up into groups and we had to act out these skits. Okay. And she, in her group, they were acting out, you know, people growing a tree and like the tree is supposed to be representative of like knowledge or something mm -hmm. like that but she was the tree and and i vividly will remember for the rest of my life her her acting out this moment of being a tree mm. and it, i was i was smitten from from there on and there was we were you know later on in the day we were having afternoon tea because Uganda was a British colony, so they still do tea time, mm -hmm. morning tea and afternoon mm -hmm. tea. And we were all lined up for our snack and our tea. And I was behind her in line, and there were a bunch of people around. And she just turns around, and I go, I would really like for you to raise my children. And it just wow. like it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> wow. It's like an appalling thing to say to it. Essentially wow. a stranger. And she was like, What? And I said, I don't know. I just, I, uh, I just think every woman should be more like you. And then my my friend Robin, who's this older woman, slaps me on on like my my shoulder, and she goes, "You are not supposed to say things like that <laughs> around <laughs> other women. Like that's something you say to somebody that you know in private." I was like, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. I don't know what came over me." Um, you know, so so there were. There were, you know, maybe one or two more instances like that, but she just thought I was a joke, man. And I think she had a boyfriend at the time, and it was, it was just, you know, I, I didn't have any high hopes. I was just taking a shot in the but, dark. But you know what, though, is, is it's funny. I remember, like, having this conversation with some friends of mine one time in college, how there's this way, like, I think sometimes women don't understand, and I don't even think men understand, this whole part, like, okay, you're drunk at a bar, and you just <coughs> flat out ask a girl to sleep with you, right? Let's, hey, let's just go home and do that. Although in today's Tinder world, it's probably a different. Thing. Oh yeah. But, but even then, Tinder. And now that I'm sitting here thinking about this, this is Tinder thing too. So, for you to just jump straight to, I want you to raise my children, right? Is to me shows the like the attra the true attraction that you had to her, and this is the reason why. Think about for a man in pursuit of a woman, how many times you can get rejected. Mm. You first say hi, right? You then try to get to know them. You ask them out on a date. You first try to kiss them. You first, you know, like all of these, there's a million different decisions and pursuit things that you do along the way to, let's say, if, even if you just want to sleep with her, mm. right? If so you're just going like, okay, I just want to get in her pants. That's all I really want to do. And you go like, okay, you just ask the question to where you're trying to get to because you're going like, okay, I'm going to just cut to the chase rather than get rejected possibly 20 times along the way. So in a way, I kind of think that there's a little bit of like, I don't know, maybe I'm a hopeless romantic, but I think there's a certain element of romanticism in the fact that you just, 
instinctively jumped straight to that. It's kind of funny because Lantana likes to point out now that that statement, like, I want you to raise my children, mm -hmm. really doesn't involve me. Like, it's not a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't think of it at the I time. I just plant my seed and you raise my children. Yeah, it, it was just sort of, I guess, my, my id speaking. <laughs> yeah, that's a really valid point. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's she was like, what did you even mean by that? Where, where are you going? Well, we kind of know what it means. Yeah. Although, but that is funny that she would she would point that out, though. That's great. So, okay, so she's got the boyfriend. You just, but you can't, you, what, did you just... Did you just keep pursuing I her? gave up on it. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, I gave up on it. And uh, about, I don't know, let's say a year later, we, a big group of us got together to go whitewater rafting on the Nile. And she was like being flirty with me right before rafting. Okay, I, I, she probably was not being flirty on, from her side. She was. She, oh, she she'll was. Admit, oh, she, she admitted. So, it so okay. we, were, she, we were being a little bit flirty um, before rafting, and then we were put in different boats, so we didn't really see each other throughout the day. But then part of the package that our group bought was there was a booze cruise in the evening. Yeah, just add alcohol. There you go. And so everybody that, that knows me now knows that I don't drink. Um, at the time, though, hey. I was a drinker. We all were. Peace Corps volunteers were notorious for it. And you had to be. And um, a booze cruise, Peace Corps volunteers are also notoriously cheap. So we like to get our right. money's worth right. for everything. Because we're volunteers. We're not making a real income. Right. We get a living allowance, but it's not, it's not sure. that much. Uh, so, man, oh, man, we had quite a bit to drink. And we, you know, it takes us an hour to walk from, from the, the dock back to, you know, the hostel where we were staying. And mm -hmm. it was like 100 yards. It was, I don't know what, how we got <laughs> lost. In the, we're just meandering, falling off of this path. Well, we make it up there, and then uh, everybody's sobered up a little bit, and we, we go to, to dinner, but we're, we're all still a little bit tipsy, and she's, like, flirting with me some more. And then, like, some of our friends just got way too drunk, so we put them to bed, and then she hadn't had much to drink, and I was, like, a full-blown alcoholic, so my tolerance was, was fine. So I was, <laughs> and, um, and we're, we're hanging out, and she's, like, flirting some more, and finally I say, listen... If, if you don't stop flirting with me, I'm going to do some things that your boyfriend's going to regret. And she said, who said I had a boyfriend? And I said, all right. Game so, on. So came on. And um, we, you know, I, we, we made a plan to, like, go out on a date and, like, meet up and... Um, proper kind. Proper kind, yeah, yeah. Oh, there um, you go. We were staying in, in dormitories with bunk beds and stuff, so it's not like we were... Hey, we're I've gonna... been in many hostels <laughs> that... Um, we're modest people. <laughs> bunk beds were no... no uh, yeah, there was plenty of squeaking going on in youth hostels. It was an impediment for us. Okay, so, there you go. There so you we, go. Okay, fair enough. And, and you know, our, our courtship began from there, and Peace Corps is a fascinating place to court somebody because you are my site was off in the eastern part of the country in the mountains mm -hmm. and her site was in the central part of the country if the roads were were in good shape and really clear it would only take about three to four hours for me to get oh, to her site wow under many circumstances it took about 10 hours for me to get there so that's like you try to see each other on the weekends is really what it yeah, is. Yeah, pretty much. And so, and if you're going to see each other, you're like staying with the person. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and like your digs, I had a large house with no furniture in it. Mm -hmm. um, she lived in a convent. 
So oh, I I would visit her one room in a convent, and as as our date, you know, I, I go out to her village, and so it's like, hey, I know we're still sort of getting to know each other, but I'm staying with you. And her her toilet was in the corner of, of her one room in the convent, and the wow. wall around the toilet didn't go all the way up to the the ceiling, so it was like it was kind of like a stall almost you're really getting into you're really, really getting quick. to know each other yeah like we would send wow. each other outside while we're using the bathroom <laughs> oh, like shit. you go go garden for a minute right. and like for me it's super awkward and light a like, match i'm gonna go hang out with these nuns like <laughs> <laughs> so you get to know each other real quick and you know you you're not getting dolled up and cleaned up it's it's a lot of effort to bathe you gotta like if you sure. want to take a bucket bath, you got to boil kettles of water and then pour it into a bucket and mix cold water. And then you're, oh, you know, it's it's a whole thing. So so you okay. get to know somebody in very raw and uncomfortable sure. circumstances. And then like Pretty. if you're traveling together, public transport is very uncomfortable. Sure. So uh, it was it was, yeah. You you go real fast through the stages of a relationship because you got to cut through all that cutesy oh, BS. Yeah. Well. Yeah. There's no. There's no room. To pretend. Yes. You know, I think that that's just it. There's no room to say, oh, okay, well, yeah, this is who I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what is it, social media. This is who I want you to think that I am, and this is who I really yeah. am. This is who, three different things, who I who I think I am, who I really am, and who I want everybody to think that I am, right? Yeah. And where you get real close, you're just like, no, nah, it's just straight up, this is just who you are. Especially in stressful situations like that, too, because, I mean, that is stressful. Yes. Is you then get to see how people are, like, at their worst. Oh, definitely. So that's where you just, like, I, I would say that you guys, without knowing anything about anything, have got to have a really strong relationship if that was the foundation, if that was the where it rose out of. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're pretty tolerant of each other at this point. Sure. I mean, like, gosh, after that, after, yeah, yeah. The bathroom in the corner of a one room at a at a at a convent. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> what else could life throw at you guys? I mean, and life threw all <laughs> sorts of stuff at us. It, it, you know, I remember that first visit too. She had gone out for a run, and she had tripped and and scraped up her her leg and her hand, but also had stepped into an open sewer ditch when she had tripped. Oh, and so like she comes back and she's like like kind of crying and upset and i'm like picking rubble out of her out of her wounds and you know real quick we we jumped to like the okay i'm seeing you at your most vulnerable and sure. you're seeing me at my vulnerable yeah that's that's actually really really cool um so she then stayed the extra two years as well yeah so so it was really it so was, those so when you're out of the peace corps did you actually get to stay with each other and not five hours away yeah okay and and that was that was pretty exciting so we were we were in peace corps and it was our, our second and final year and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do and we kind of want to stay together. Mm -hmm. And so I start looking for jobs in D.C. because that seemed like, you know, when you're in Peace Corps, when you get out, you, you get federal preference for a year um, for federal jobs. It's kind of like oh, okay. veterans preference almost, but okay. it's only for one year, not like veterans preference that goes for right. the rest of your life. Um, so you get preference, and and we were doing work with the U.S. government, so it, it was it was a good um, transitional spot. A lot of return volunteers go to D.C., so I've been looking for jobs in D.C. But then, at our post in Uganda, um, the the director of our program, who was an American, was leaving. She decided that that 
-hmm. you know, her contract was up, she didn't want to renew. So that job opening opened up mm -hmm. and Lantana had, she knew what she was doing. She had been involved with the program mm -hmm. and she said, I, I want to apply for this job. And I said, all right, I'll stick around if, if you get this job, we'll, cool. we'll stay. And she applied and, you know, a couple other volunteers applied and there was like, of course, everybody's going to be like, Ooh, I wonder who's going to get it. It was, right. And in my mind, I never doubted that Lantana was going to get this job. Oh, cool. I was like, she's the most qualified person. These other guys are chumps. I'm not even worried. And they're like, but so-and-so, you know, they taught at this school for, for a couple of years, and this person has this degree. I was like, she's the most qualified. I know this. Right. Um, so she ended up getting the job, and it was like, okay, well, I guess we're not moving back to America. I packed up my stuff, brought it home, came back to America for a month. Um, while I was in America, I bought a one-way ticket back to Uganda mm -hmm. and packed my suitcase and headed back to Uganda. And I actually got back to Uganda a couple of days before Lantana got back to start her job. Okay. And I was staying at this this hotel that was frequented by by volunteers because it was dirt cheap mm -hmm. and so i was staying in this dirt cheap room that was about the size of a coffin and <laughs> uh she she got there and we set about finding an apartment in kampala and we found a place it was it was a house that we got really cheap um like six hundred dollars a month mm. and basically the whole point was we can we get the house at this low rate just as long as we don't bother the landlord and take care of stuff ourselves. and so we Perfect. got this compound in Kampala and we moved in there and we had to do a lot of fixing it up but it was it was great cool and I was scrambling to to find work and I had done a little bit of um, work with a couple of nonprofit organizations out in Uganda excuse me out in Uganda um, that dealt with literacy because my, my background with the spelling bee and mm -hmm, I, I mm -hmm. maintained my work with the spelling bee. And um, one of the expats that I became acquainted with, he was leaving his job at an international school and they needed somebody quick. And so cool. he said, can you, can you take my job? Uh, you know, they're, they're going into finals. So I, I got this job and for American standards, it paid dirt, but for Ugandan standards, sure. it, was, it was great. Um, so I, I taught at an international school and my wife worked for, for Peace Corps and why didn't you stay? Uh, her contract was, was coming up oh, after okay. a couple of years. I didn't and, know if it was yeah, one of those things like you just get a job and you keep the job or whatever. Yeah, no, she, so, so her contract was coming up. She, she had kind of, you know, she did what she wanted to do and her, her sisters were planning, or her one sister at least, was planning on moving back to Maui at the time. Mm -hmm. And my wife is very close with her family, and oh, especially cool. her mom and her, her sisters. And so she said, I want to I want to go back to Maui. And you're like, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? All right. Twist you, my arm. I, I had already didn't have many connections with any place else. And so, so it was pretty simple. Perfect. And my wife was skeptical that I would be able to, to do it. You know, like, cause you know how people from Maui worry about people coming and how Maui wow. either accepts you or it spits you out. Right. Right. No, that's a legit concern. No, that, that, that's a totally legit concern because it not only does it take you in or spit you out, but yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, everybody listening to this podcast understands that. Yeah. 
Um, but but I was like, not gonna happen to me. I got a, a Hawaii phone number before I'd even been to Hawaii. <laughs> Perfect. And and yeah, I moved on out, and the the adventure continued. Very cool. So you guys got married here then? So, yes. Okay. So you'd been together three four years. Mm-hmm. At that time, you have so what? How'd you finally pop the question? Like, what was the like? How how'd that come together? My wife is is a little bit of a feminist, and and she kind of didn't really. She was saying like, oh, we don't need to get married. We could just be in a long term relationship, committed to each other forever. Mm. And I, I'm I'm kind of a traditionalist, and and I agreed with her, and I still agree with her. We could have stayed in, in a long term relationship, uh, and been perfectly happy, but. I wanted her to be my wife. Like that means something. It does mean something. It's it, it's it's different when you're married. Yeah. For everybody that's like never been married and says like, oh no, we'll just be in that committed. Nah, you know, it's different when you stand up in front of friends, family, and God and declare that this is what I'm going to do, and then you, you know, it, it's just different. Exactly. And and we, you know, we had we were back on Maui for. Um, a little over a year by the time I, I popped the question, and I had I had wanted to propose to her when we were still in Uganda. Did it surprise the hell out of her? It did. Nice. How'd you do it? Well, so so I I got the ring. I worked with her sister on on choosing a ring. Okay. And we planned a, a trip. Her sister planned a, a vacation to the Big Island and invited us to come along. Mm-hmm. And I had this ring and I was holding on to it. And I was originally going to propose at Eau Valley because that's a special place to us. We, we oh, go cool. and, and go to Eau Valley frequently. And I thought it would be nice for her to have some place to visit. And when we go there, she can also think about this, this great oh, proposal. Right. But we, we were planning this big island trip beforehand. So I figured, let me take the, the ring with me. And we were out there. And I remember like the Friday night that we were there, we went and visited one of her cousins. And I was outside with me, her cousin, um, her her brother-in-law, Dwayne, and uh, one of our other friends that, that was with us on this trip. And we're all outside, and the girls are inside. And I, I say, hey, guys, I, uh, I brought a ring with me, and I think I'm, I'm going to propose. And her cousin and, and our friend... You can't tell other people first. Well, her cousin <laughs> and her friend were, were like, oh, that's awesome. And my brother-in-law, Dwayne goes, I don't think that's a good idea, man. I was like, what? What do you mean you don't think this is a good idea? He's like, Psh, you're just going to ruin the trip if she says no. Like, are you sure right. she's going to say right, yes? This right. is this is Lanny we're talking about. Can you be certain she's going to say yes? I was like, Dwayne, I am very confident that she's going to say yes. He's like, I don't know. I wouldn't do it if I were you. And I was like, Jesus, man. Okay. So, so the next day, though, we just have the best day ever. Like we mm. we're we're at Dwayne's family cabin that's that's in the the national park, mm. um, and we're we're going around to these different sites. We go to the hot springs and and we're we're swimming in pools and we just had this amazing day. We visited a, another friend that had land out there and they showed us this beautiful home, and then we decided to end the day by going up to Mount Akea for sunset. Mm. And we ended up not going to the main summit because you needed the four-wheel drive, and we right. didn't have the four-wheel drive. But, but we walk um, up to one of the side ridges uh, on Mount Akea to watch sunset. Just the two of you? No, our, our whole group. Okay. But, but when Lantana went to the bathroom, I, I took her sister aside in the, the gift shop, and I said, Holly, I got the ring with me. I'm going to do it. Let's, I, think, I think now is the, the time when we go up there. She goes, okay, and we, we work out a plan. 
and it's, it's really beautiful. And we're all sitting there and Holly goes, okay, guys, let's, let's take a picture. And, and so, so we're all standing up and I'm just like, come on, everybody, let's take a picture. And, and then Holly's like, no, 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 I just want one of the two of you guys first. And, and then, you know, and she's like, well, why don't we, why don't we face the other way this way, the light shining on us? And, and Holly's like, no, you're just the two of you. <laughs> And you're gonna face that way, and you're gonna do the the picture this way. And like, fine, okay, like, fine, well, yeah, whatever. Well, well. <laughs> and and so so Holly's taking the picture, and then I I reach into my pocket and I go to go down on one knee, but Lantana thinks that I'm slipping because it's gravelly. So oh. she like grabs me and it'll pull me up, and I'm, I'm, I just keep on going. I pull out the ring, and her face is is just it like lights up, and oh, cool. I go you want to get married? And she just lets out this howl of a laugh. <laughs> she just throws her head back and laughs. And, uh, and she goes, yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, cool. And, I'm uh, being all teary. Yeah, oh. everybody, everybody around was clapping. And then we, we stayed and we watched the sunset. And it was, it was just, it was great. It was, it was awesome. the perfect end to, to a perfect day. Perfect. Um, Dwayne ate his words. He, he had nothing to worry about. <laughs> Well, from what you're, I mean, I don't know your wife, right? I don't, I don't know Lantana, but it seems like she's a very uh, willful, strong woman mm. that knows what she wants. And that's probably his perception that's like going, I don't know, dude, you better be 100% yeah. on this one because you pull that one, especially in front of a bunch of people, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a hinge point in a relationship yes. either way. Yeah. Even a no is like, oh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know many, any, did you feel like the Brinks truck walking around with it in your pocket? Like I was, I was checking my pocket very frequently right, like to doing, make sure yeah, that it was like, there. I was super nervous. Yeah. And you know, thankfully my wife also doesn't like diamonds. Uh, she, mm -hmm. she thinks that, that the diamond trade is kind of gross. Um, it is quite honestly. Yeah. And, and, and we could go down that rabbit hole really easy. Yeah. So, so she really didn't want a diamond. So, so I got her a moissanite. And my wife is also... Um, I don't even know what that is. It's, it's a synthetic stone that's it's oh, a lot okay. like diamond, um, but it actually has a, a little more glitter than diamonds oh, because okay. it captures more of the spectrum. Okay. Um, and it's, I think, like it, it's derived from, from some mineral that they found in an asteroid. And it's, it's okay. beautiful. It looks like a big diamond. So oh, that's okay. pretty cool. It makes yeah, me feel go. good. That's got, <laughs> it's the bling for me. Uh, and, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to like break the bank on, sure. on the ring. Sure, uh, sure. So, so I, but of course you don't want to like lose it. And my wife right. still doesn't know how much I, I paid for the ring, but because, she. because she's, her business. she's kind of uh, <laughs> frugal, I like to, to just drop numbers every now and then. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, be like, don't lose that. That's a, that's a $12,000 ring right there. She, You're not serious, are you? <laughs> You're not serious. Oh, oh my you don't God. know. You don't know. Yeah. So the number always changes. It was not a twelve thousand. <laughs> I was, I was still pretty broke at that point. Sure, so. sure. So okay, so you guys get married. So then I gotta just ask you the the. I mean, I know you and I have talked about it before, but just on the on the podcast, kids, no kids. You know, like where where are you guys at with all that? We we don't know. I feel yeah. like, I feel like kind of like your dad or your grandfather, right? Going, you gotta have some kids. Yeah, it's it's difficult because we both of us individually like kids. Like we enjoy mm -hmm. being around children. You know, we've both been teachers. Then then you then you know that'll having kids will completely shatter. That. <laughs> <laughs> and we we have our nephews and our nieces that we love, and and we 
we go back and forth on mm. whether to have our own kids. Um, we, we just had a, a friend in town with, with her baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ava is, is the baby's ah, name, too. There we go. Uh, and, uh, and I was playing with the baby yesterday, feeding her, and, and my wife admitted, and she goes, kind of makes me want to have kids seeing you feed a baby like that. <laughs> well, it is true. I mean, is, is and, you know, I, don't, I want to start calling you Jay since you said that's what your brother calls you. Yeah, you can call me Jay. Is um, being someone that had a kid at 50... It's just like, I think that every everybody should experience it. Mm. Like, cause it's, and here's the other thing. I realize now, kids are okay. Kids are cute. I like kids, but I really don't like kids. I love my kids. My <laughs> kids are great. Other people's kids, yeah, they're okay. You know I mean? It's not like I have to tolerate them or anything like that. But when you have your own kid, it's like such a different experience. Like even nieces, nephews, cause I mean, I have... Went to the five, you know, nieces and nephews and love them all dearly. But it's just like, a, it, like it doesn't compare to having your own kid. Like if there's this whole other oh, yeah. thing that you can't explain. Um, so anyways, I just, I wish that for you and your wife that if you guys choose to do that, um, that you have that experience. And, and I have, you know, a lot of my mentors, um, it's funny, a lot of my friends and mentors, friends and mentors both, are roughly almost exactly 20 years older than me. And they just all pounded me like I am 20 years <laughs> older than you doing the same thing. And, uh, and once it happened, it was just like, oh, I get what I didn't get. Yeah. So anyways. I mean, I, 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 love, I love holding babies. You know, like I, I know yeah. that I would love being a dad. And I know I think that, be great that, um, that Lantana would be a, a great mom. Like it, it's, it's more the everything else. You know, that concern of paying the bills and, and making sure that you got a, a secure You're never going to be you know, ready. Household. Yeah. You're never going to be ready. If you wait till you're ready, you'll never have kids because you're never you're like, okay, I got to have the right job. I got to have the right housing situation. I got to, you know, figure out what's, you know, what I want to be when I grow up mm. or, you know, I, you know, blah, 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 whatever it might be. Um, at some point in time, you got to just say, you know what, it's not not going to be perfect. It's not going to be, you know, you got to just go, yeah, this is just what we want to do. And I, I like to think about sometimes um, how I would do this job with a baby. Like, I think I could, I have I pictures could be of my, the dad yeah, oh, yeah. with a baby strapped to me. I think oh, it would actually help. It would be awesome. Yeah. It'd be, actually, I, I never took Ava into the chambers to testify with me or anything like that. But it's funny. Yesterday, her, every once in a while, she wants to go look at herself as a baby on my <laughs> phone. She's like, I want to look at baby pictures on the phone. So we're going through baby pictures on my phone. And there was a bunch of pictures of her in this office right here. As a matter of fact, her trying to open that door. She, had to, <laughs> she was trying to reach. She was reaching as high as she could to try to open that doorknob right now. Now she's as tall as that doorknob. So it's actually pretty pretty interesting little turn of events but um right it would be perfect i could i could turn you know corner of the office into a nursery and right there you go little little crib right yeah, there pack and play we, i'd be fine i think I, I think i could i could do it balance oh, it 100 percent. and then eventually just transition to stay at home dad is that, <laughs> that's what i want to speak what does your wife do what does, what does lantana do for a living well she is currently teaching at uhmc mm. so when we came back part of it too was she had gotten a job uh, at UHMC for a program that, that was geared towards Native Hawaiian students and trying to, to get more Native Hawaiian participation in uh, higher education. Mm. So she, she applied for that job and interviewed for it while we were on safari. 
And because oh, of the cool. time difference, because Uganda is literally just the opposite side of the world from here, right. she had to get up in the middle of the night, and we were in these safari tents, and the, the campgrounds had hippos and warthogs all over the place. And so while she's doing this interview, she's trying to avoid all of these hippos and warthogs that are just just munching through. around these these uh, these campsites and not telling them. And finally, after the interview, she told them, by the way, I'm, I'm running away from a hippo right now. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid this hippo that, that keeps on. And they're mean. They can be. Yeah, yeah. They, they can they're be. They're, they're like the most dangerous. Um, but but yeah. over in this campground, they've, they've figured out a symbiosis with the humans. The humans leave got the it. hippos alone. But, I mean, it's crazy, though, when you're in a canvas tent and you've got a hippo, oh. you know, just three inches, you know, on the other side of that yeah. tent just munching on grass or, or that you can't go into your tent because there's a warthog out front napping it's like okay this is safari that's but, actually but cool that was that was her interview and she got the job and uh and that's that's one of the main reasons why we moved out here got it um got it. very and, cool but but i think the the grant is is just finishing up so she's actually going to be looking for for a new endeavor hmm. uh, for next school year I think. you guys have quite the rainbow spectrum of experiences that's really cool yeah yeah it's kind of like i mean i still go back to the you know the advice your your pops gave you it's just like it's kind of you know you're you definitely didn't graduate from school and then you know get that job in nine to five and climb the ladder and you know you're in a bigger cubicle now than you were you know two years ago or whatever it might be yeah uh a lot of a lot of my folks my friends did um but yeah i guess that was never for me right and so how cool to bring a little 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 children, I'll say children rather than a child, right? Children into 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 that for you guys. So then, um, you guys are on Maui. So it seems like we're kind of going through your life chronologically here. So now you're the gad. Now I'm the gad. Now yeah. you're the gad. So, what's the best part of this job? Oh, I I love. I mean, probably not to sound like a suck up. Maybe my boss. Um, I, I think not just David, but but really everybody that I work with, including you yeah, know, that sounds like being a second, and, and almost especially the the GAC. <laughs> Got it. Well, what it really is is I've never had this level of trust in my abilities mm. at, at a job. Mm. You know, my at the law firm they trusted me, of course, but but I there was still a lot of safety net there for me. Mm-hmm. But coming into to this job with you know, from the get-go, Peter and Roy and David just empowered me and said, this is, this is how we see the job. This is how your predecessors did the job. Do the job your way. Mm-hmm. Don't screw it up. There you go. And whenever I need help or answers, they're, they're there. But I never have, um, you know, nobody's, nobody's peering over my shoulder and mm-hmm. making sure I'm, I'm doing things the way that they would do it. And even when right. Peter and Roy and I are discussing, you know, let's say a policy position or a piece of legislation, a lot of times, even when they disagree with me, they'll say, well, you know, did you read this and, and did you, you know, did you put in the time? Mm-hmm. Especially Roy is great at this. And if I say, if I tell him I put in the time and this is, this is honestly the position that I think is the best, he'll defer to, to that. Cool. And... And that has, that's been, I love that aspect of the job because it is so empowering and it really has allowed me um, to do things like this podcast, right. which, 
you know, it, it's a huge gamble. When, if you have some guy that, you know, you've told him, Dave DeLeon did the blog this way, Lawrence did the blog this way, you're going to do the blog. And then he goes, actually, instead of doing a blog, I want to do this thing that you've never done before and that, that your members, you know, might not necessarily be clued into. And they were like, okay, do it. Right. Just whatever you need. And that level of, of freedom to, to experiment with, with new ideas and, and positions on stuff is, is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that I have the autonomy, but I have as much collaboration as I want to. It's mm-hmm. the best of both worlds. And then, you know, where we, it often comes up, this office is just beautiful. <laughs> um, it, it, the view that I have is, you know, it's, it's a dream. Well, there's the there's some openings on the on the other side towards the ocean. I like Eo Valley. Eo Valley. It, it's, <laughs> well, it's actually said it's you and your wife. That's yeah. You know, it's a special place you're, for, you're kind for of us. Cool. So it's perfect. You had a little church right there in the foreground. It's and, very peaceful out here. Yeah. So so those aspects of the job are really great. And then the other great thing about working around elected officials is that you know they depend on people liking them to get reelected. So they're generally pretty likable people. They're they're pretty friendly and nice. <laughs> they 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 can turn otherwise sometimes. <laughs> but luckily I haven't I haven't suffered much of that. Yeah. Um what's been the most difficult part of the job? The most difficult actually relates in with with the best part, which is right. that not having a set guideline for how to do the job. Mm-hmm. It um that can get a little nerve-wracking sometimes. Like you know, there there certainly are times when I, I find myself in bed at 11 o'clock at night kind of having a hard time turning my brain off worrying about elections. Sure. And it's because, you know, I don't have, uh, I've, I always have you and Dave to call on, but it's different than having somebody in here that, that knows what they're doing to tell me, no, 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 you're better off doing it this way. So so kind of having to, to learn the ropes on my own and, and figure out, what will work for me and what won't work for me has has been a little bit difficult and also because i have so much freedom sometimes it is a struggle to remain disciplined and and focused you know i'll find myself in here and an hour will go by and i'll realize like i haven't done anything productive and but that's like most people in the workplace yeah <laughs> It is. It is. No, I, I can definitely relate to what you're saying. It's because, you know, like the greatest part is I have a tremendous amount of freedom. The worst part is I have no structure. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it, to, to really oversimplify it in, in a way, you know, so it's or you, know, you have to create your own structure, what, you know, prioritize what you think is important and not. Mm. Um, and I think part of and this is just me interjecting then part of it is. What's important, what's not important. You know, what is really, like, is there anything that's a five alarm fire? Yeah. Is there, is there not? You know, is, is it just, okay, I'm just shuffling paper for a while, but when the shit hits the fan, it's like, I got to be ready for it with my shovel. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just kind of, an, it, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can relate to what you're saying, you know, um, from that standpoint. If you, had to, if you had to change anything, what would you change? Or get an intern. might be nice to have an intern um yeah um that actually might not be a bad idea yeah and i've I've thought about it especially with with elections it might be nice just as an educational opportunity for for like a high school student or something to come in and and help with 
some of the more menial tasks that'll come up. But the ultimate part, that's actually a great idea. Cause I mean, if nothing else, just to learn beyond schoolhouse rocks. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, I'm just a bill. But even that, I would have to, there's a very small part of the population that understands how an idea becomes an ordinance or a law mm. on Maui County. Oh yeah, I had no idea. Like, you know, how does the ball have to bounce? You know, all the way from like second reading, you know, first reading, second reading. Well, what does that even mean? You know, I mean, so to, and, and some kid that has aspirations of wanting to be a politician one day. And so you can just beat it out of them. <laughs> <laughs> or you get the psycho that it really appeals to, that they, they see it and they're just The like, megalomaniac oh, yeah. that's just like going, yes, I have to be. I love this bureaucracy. This <laughs> so how many times a, a month do you get asked if you're going to run for election or run for office? It's been happening more and more frequently. It, okay. it, um, when I first started up, I, you know, probably around three months in, I, I started getting the questions of, you know, would you be interested in, mm. in running? Is this something that appeals to you? Um, then it, it kind of died down for a while after me saying no, no, no. Uh, recently, especially with, you know, well, it's election are, season coming. It's election season. And with the recent drama with the county council, um, I've had a few people say, you know, you'd be a good candidate. You should think about running for office. And I, I still firmly and vehemently say, and do they no know way. which district you live in? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting that, that, uh, the people that would ask you to run, want you to run against Alice. Yeah. Which, um, I, that's, that's another reason why I just, sure. I don't, I don't feel a need to challenge Alice Lee. Right. Um, but, but aside from that, the biggest reason is probably the, the biggest reason is probably privacy. I enjoy a certain level of privacy. Um, and I, I want mm -hmm. my family, my extended family, to enjoy right. that a level of privacy even greater than my own. And when you run for office, you have people digging into everything. And yeah. thankfully, I, I really don't have many skeletons. You know, anything that could right. be considered a skeleton is buried so far away <laughs> that, that, you know, nobody, I'm not worried about anybody finding it. And it's, it's nothing too embarrassing. I, you know, like I'm just, whatever. Right. Um, you know, if somebody's going to bring up something I said when I was drunk at a party in my early 20s, that, that's meaningless. Who cares? Um, so, so that part I'm not worried about. But, yeah, I don't, I don't want everybody in my life to, to be exposed to, to people saying negative things about me, people looking into their business and saying negative things about them. I, I like being sort of this neutral figure who's mm -hmm. just, you know, representing the RAM uh, constituents and the RAM people, and, and that's all. Do you feel like you're neutral? I am far more neutral than a lot of folks. I, as, as far as Maui politics, I'm very liberal. So, so in my personal life, I, and my, my personal ideologies, I fall, I fall very far left. Um, but I'm also extremely pragmatic. So what that means is a lot of the stuff that the liberals, the far left liberals support, because I look at it and analyze it with a legal perspective and a practical perspective, I don't, I don't agree with it. So, so when it comes to implementing legislation, I actually fall more, more towards the middle mm -hmm. because, you know, I know that these advisory committees are a great example. Mm. So, so they want to make the South Maui advisory committee, they want to make a Paia Haiku advisory committee. Um, from a liberal's perspective, 
it's great. More public input. We, we get more um, direct democracy. The people are more involved. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a really feel-good thing for, for the libs to, to latch on to. And it's something that I would latch on to if I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. But because I am paying attention, I look at that and I say, okay, we're going to have to find venues for these meetings. We're going to have to staff these meetings. We're going to have to record these meetings. We're going to have to transcribe these meetings. Um, this process that already the complaint for development is that it's too complex and it takes too long. Um, you're going to add no less than three months. The, the, the mm -hmm. least amount that, that's probably going to be added to the time frame for any development is three months, but it's more likely to be six months to a year that gets added. Or more. Or more. Just, just by adding this advisory committee. So you have budget implications and you have time implications. And when you look at the practical stuff and, and the real liberal policy, which is you want people to have homes, you know, that's, that's how liberal I am. I want people to be in homes. Like I want people to have a roof over their head. And I want that to be available to as many people as possible. And because I'm that liberal, I think we need to streamline the, the process of development, not make it more complex. Um, and I think we need to, to be aware of Maui County's budget ballooning and try and cut out as much of the fat as possible because I don't consider the money that's given to, to service providers as fat. I think that's good. You know, it, I want more money in our budget to go towards the things that help the community as opposed to staffing another regulatory body. Right. Well, here's one thing about that, that, that you bring that up. And I do want to go back to your political beliefs because, anyways... But those advisory committees, this is the part that, that I haven't heard anybody talk about, is it's going to be, make people more mad, not less. Mm. And the reason why is because people are going to feel even less heard. Believe it or not, as much as you say, like, okay, because here's the reality. What you're doing is you're recreating a regulatory body that has no authority. So it's going to go to South Maui Advisory Committee, as an example. And then it's going to go to the Planning Commission, who's actually going to make the decision. So if they don't decide 100% of the time with what the advisory committee is advising, then the advisory committee is going to be all sour at the Planning Commission. Yeah. As an example, and all of these things that they're saying about and talking about the Planning Commission, I would like to just overlay under the County Council. Because already, I know of members, plural, I've only been on there less, just less than four years, members that have quit the planning commission because they feel like their voice isn't heard. Because we make recommendations to the county council and the county council doesn't follow our recommendations as planning commissioners and we're going like, well then why does it even come to us? If you're not even gonna, if you're not even gonna read our transcript, if you're not even gonna look at what we have to say, then why are we even advisory? I guarantee these advisory committees to the planning commission, the same exact conversation is going to be had. Yeah. The, the very first time that the planning commission makes a decision that doesn't congrue with that. But the biggest piece of it, and this is the same thing, is with the, you know, it'd be no different than, I mean, all the arguments that they're making against, say, the planning commission, they can't hold water to the same thing with themselves at the, at the county council. It's just like, oh, representation of districts, and oh, I mean, all these, da, 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 whatever it might be. Um, but I want to go back to, because I think that your, an anomaly politically from like a political perspective. Mm. And, and the way that you just explained it to me kind of sheds light a little bit on it. Because on one hand, you're this Peace Corps hippie guy. Yeah. 
you know, that's like makes Bernie look a little bit, little bit conservative, you know, to, to a certain extent. And yet you'll come out with these arguments that are just not that. And so it's, in, it's interesting because there's been times I'm going, okay, is he just really good at putting on his gad hat and screwing it on really, really tight and saying, okay, this is my job and I have to put my personal beliefs aside? Or is there a way with, and we kind of talked about this a little bit the last time you were interviewing me, is, and, or how much of this is, is the dynamic of just going, okay, I'm pragmatic. I'm, it's one, one very key point is that I've got a very strong moral compass. And I refuse to make bad faith arguments that, that the morality doesn't, doesn't fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, luckily I've, I've not been put in that circumstance, but even, even in my legal career, when I, you know, there was an instance where I, I had a client want me to make a bad faith argument mm. and essentially lie. Mm. And I went to my bosses and I said, I'm, I'm not doing this. And their immediate reaction was, get rid of them. We don't need cool. them as clients. And, and so that's why I, I can never say anything bad about my, my former employers. Um, but but that's, how, that's how I function too. And so, so when I make an argument that doesn't seem like it fits with, with the, the liberal mindset, it really is because my, my morality allows it. Um, I think you know, we all have this obligation to mind our own conscience. Uh, nobody's going to mind it for us. And even if somebody that you respect tells you to do something that's against your conscience, you, just, you disregard that. You have the obligation. Right. You are the one who's going to pay the price. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it. But part of it is, you know, it's, it's really just the pragmatism. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think liberal ideas that are poorly implemented are just as bad as, as any other type of idea. Sure. You just, I just don't want bad ideas that are bad for the, for the county. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I got a lot of flack from the libs over the injection well sure. position. And, you know, when you really go back and look at my position, it, it was... It's logical. It was, you can, <laughs> you know, look, look from a historical perspective. You just know, living in Hawaii, that the federal government has not cared about Hawaii as much as the people of Hawaii have. You know, we, mm -hmm. I, I think this, this notion that, um, you know, oh, we don't wanna let the feds get to it. Well, going to the Supreme Court with the injection well case was the only way to bring it back to Hawaii, possibly. It was already in the hands of the feds. Right. So, so my whole position was you can trust Hawaii to set more stringent standards for, for its drinking water than you can the federal government. And if we're not setting those more stringent standards now, that's the problem. That's what we need to be addressing. Right. Um, we don't need to hand it over to the federal government to tell us what to do with our water. Right. And, and that's like the most home rule um, sort of local lib position in my mind. Right. You know, that, that I want higher standards that we dictate for our people. Right. But that kind of gets lost by, by the more by the critics who are on the liberal side who don't look at the, the actual um, ramifications. Well, see, and that's part of, I guess, my issue with politics today is one with which is if you don't agree with me, then, you know, on 100 percent of the things and you're bad or wrong, mm. um, I somehow have a higher moral compass than you do, and I care more, so then therefore um, I'm right, 
Like, you know, it's this, it's, I, I keep saying all the time recently, it's like, is it feel good or do good? Mm. And so many times it's like, you know, you get lambasted for something that might do good because it doesn't necessarily feel good. Because I have an idea that feels good where you're just, you know, you're trying to use logic and it's like, no, this feels good. How could you be against this thing that feels good? Um, and it, and it's funny, like for me, I've noticed more and more I get incensed by it. And so my question is, because um, I think you and I look at things pretty similarly a lot, especially in the political realm, at least how we approach it, mm. um, how, you know, how we kind of try to look at it and sort of tear it apart to break it down into its pieces to understand it, is how are, you know, like say, okay, your views are this, okay, I'm this lib that's, you know, pragmatic, but when you come across these people that just know pragmatism, mm. it's just, no, we just have to because, and I'm right. How do you compartmentalize that? Oh, man. And I'm asking that more as a question for myself, for you to give me advice. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm guilty of finding it infuriating as well. I, I do find it infuriating. But, you know, I think Peace Corps was probably the best training for for this in the sense that you have to to approach everybody with, with a bit of compassion mm -hmm. for lack of a better word and mm -hmm. and trying to understand where they're coming from so all the folks who disagree with me on stuff i don't think it's because they're stupid or they don't get it some um, of them are some of them some of them it might be i mean like if we're just talking numbers yeah definitely a sure. numbers game some of it's because they just didn't want to do the homework they don't have the inclination to think about things so they're just following a crowd and i think for a lot of people it's not necessarily because they're stupid but there is a lot of following the crowd because yep. it's it's within human nature it's beneficial not to make waves social cohesion is something that's important to our survival as a species. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think a lot of people just join up with their team and go along with it. And when they feel like their team is being challenged, they fight back and lash out and they call people liars and, sure. and say all sorts of names. And so- Identity politics. Identity politics, that's exactly what it is. And for me though, I, when I got hired, I was tasked build bridges mm -hmm. um, in my life. I, I never benefited from, from the bridges that I burned. Well, maybe a couple of the bridges I benefited from burning. <laughs> but um, but I, I, especially working in Uganda and, and working with people who had very different upbringings than me, very different beliefs than me, realizing that if I want to accomplish what's best for the people I'm representing, whether it's kids that I'm trying to get you know, better academics for or realtors that I'm trying to get better policy for or just the people of Maui, I can't approach an argument by starting out from the position, you're stupid and, and I know better than you. I need to approach the argument from, why do you feel that way? Mm -hmm. How can I articulate why I think the way I think? And how can I get you to think the way that I think? And it's that, that initial question of, why do you think that way? Why do you feel that way? That, that I have to, to start with. And you know, if I approach that from a more compassionate perspective, it, it makes me more effective. So, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that's how I cope with, with the folks who just dig in and, and disagree for the sake of disagreeing or the people that disagree with me because they really think they're right. Um, I just try and be compassionate and realize that maybe they are right. I mean, I've been wrong on so many things. You know, like... I, <laughs> I'll just ask your wife. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Like we've all been wrong on stuff. And and we've we've all we need to have the, the capacity to change our mind on things and we need to be allowed by others to change our mind on things. Mm -hmm. You know, when somebody I remember, you know, people attacking Hillary Clinton for for being opposed to gay, gay marriage in the past. Mm. And it's like, okay, I understand why you're attacking her for that. But the point is, she's here with us now. You know, she's right. she's changed her mind. Right. And when a politician changes their mind to a better position, we don't want to to do harm to them for changing their mind and making a better choice. You bring up a great point, which is it's it's funny how we lambast politicians for changing their mind. Yeah. We want them to take a position and that's the position and that's all you're known for and then therefore that is just who you are and it's set in stone and we're done. And it's like, well, because we want them to be that way, right? So when you're on my side, right? Yeah. I want you to be dogmatic. So I know you're predictable, so I know exactly where you are, but if you're not predictable, then somehow you're not trustworthy. And I've said all along, I think it's the opposite. I think it's actually counterintuitive yeah. to say, but it's, it's true. This is like, if you're willing to change your mind, then if you're not loyal, you're actually trustworthy. Yeah. And my perfect example I always use, as a matter of fact, this current county council, I was the very first person to testify in front of this particular county council last year, January 2nd. And the thing that I told, I told them this, I says, if you're not loyal, you're actually trustworthy. And the example is, your, your best friend calls you up and says, hey, if my wife calls, I was with you last night. And I'd be like, no, I was not with you last night and I'm not going to tell your wife that you were with me last night. Yeah. Because as soon as you, she finds out that you're lying, guess what? I'm the liar. Yeah. Not you. So it's just like, so really, if you're not loyal, loyal you're actually trustworthy because that means I can actually, you're not bought and paid for or you're not whatever it is. You're actually open to ideas. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with you on that. So, I guess, in this job, what's the greatest challenge in trying to navigate elected officials? And I know that some of them are going to be listening to this. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have a certain orientation. Let me, let, me, let me frame my question. They have a certain orientation, and most of them. I'm going to say a large majority of them, their job is to get reelected. Mm. Their job is to get elected and stay elected, right? Is to keep their job. So they have a certain orientation that is placating to people that vote. Yeah. And people that influence votes. So in sort of knowing that and knowing that in this current snapshot of time, Ram's not the big dog in the room. So that's sort of how I'm framing the question is then in in sort of trying to navigate and deal with elected officials, you know, how do you how do you navigate that? When you don't have authority on a subject based on your numbers or when you don't have authority based on the number of people behind you. Um, I think that's where you need to find your, your authority to speak on subjects from a different source. And I try and find that authority and demonstrate that authority to be listened to by demonstrating that I've done my homework. Mm. That when I take a position 
It's not because David Ballou gave me a call or because, you know, Peter gave me a call saying, you know, this is, this is the position Ram should take. Mm -hmm. um, but instead, it's because I've taken the time to look at, uh, you know, whatever legislation or, or proposed bill that, that's up and that I've done some level of research and that I'm coming to this conclusion not because it would be good for my industry, but because it'll be good for all of us. Um, so, so it's really that, that bridging the gap and finding the authority elsewhere. Because Ram, you know, you, you did a great job on, on a document that um, I think it might have been one of our, our former candidate questionnaires, where you actually break down, Ram has 1,700 members, we have mm. this many affiliates, um, this is the average size of their families. These are the, the average number of, of voting members of these families. So all in all, Ram has the ear of about 6,000 voters mm -hmm. um, or, or more. And, and that's a lot, but that's, that's not a ton. It, it's not enough to, to necessarily really um, command people to do what you want. Well, it's not enough to get you elected, but it's enough to move the needle. It is. It's certainly enough to move the needle. But, but I think the, the trick is you got to find more. And the, the way that I try and do that and my, my liberal background helps me out. Like you can't really accuse me of being a conservative um, based on my background right. and, and my ideologies. I mean, you talk to me for, for a half hour, it's pretty clear that, that I'm not you know, I'm not looking for us to go frack and, and kill baby seals and do all the, the scary sort of stuff associated with conservatism. Right. I'm not a Rush Limbaugh guy. Right. Um, that's apparent. So, so hopefully people realize that I'm coming from it from a, a similar perspective, that I want what's best for the, the communal good. Mm -hmm. um, and then just, just doing the homework and, right. and demonstrating, listen, I don't want you to listen to me because I'm going to threaten you with, with taking away this many voters. Right. I don't want you to listen to me because I'm going to threaten you with, with an industry coming after you. I want you to listen to me because you recognize that I'm somebody worth listening to. Become a, a, an authority, you know, to become knowledgeable on something. And, and it's really interesting because it's almost like experts are now looked down upon. Yes. It's really bizarre. I was, you know, because we've talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Yeah. The Dunning-Kruger effect is one with which, in, you know, it's a psychological term where if you know nothing about something, you're super confident about it because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And then as you start to learn more, you go like, oh, you become really unconfident. You, you lose a lot of confidence because you realize, oh, I don't really know anything about this. But when you're an expert on something, you're not super confident because you actually know that you don't know anything. And there's always more to learn. Right. So the curve of like someone who's an expert in the field is actually not as confident as someone who knows absolutely nothing in the field. Yeah. And we find this in, in at least for me, I see this all the time in the conversations around housing here on Maui. People who have no idea what they're talking about are the most confident in their positions. So going then to you being an expert and really wanting to be an expert through homework, through diligence, through all these different things to then go, oh, well, he's getting paid, and so mm. then therefore we shouldn't listen to him. But typically, people who are experts get paid because they're experts. Yeah. So to suddenly say like, "Oh, you're being paid," and so then that then taints your 
your expertise and your knowledge because you're getting paid for your expertise and knowledge and so therefore we shouldn't listen to you is one, that's one of those ones that is starting to drive me crazy right now because we're seeing it more and more in our local spheres. Yeah, that drives me nuts, especially when I'm, you know, I got up and, and um, when the council was considering overriding the mayor's veto of Bill 59, right. the, the tax bill that lumped together all of those different classifications. Right. Um, it was the same day that, that Kelly King was, was stepping down and Alice Lee was, was right. going to be given the mantle of council chair. And I got up and I testified, and I was one of the only people that testified on the tax issue. And that was, that was pretty much all I testified on. Right. And the person immediately behind me, next in line, has to, to start, you know, the person who came in front of me was a paid lobbyist, and we have too many um, business interests, and Kelly was fighting against that. And I'm just thinking to myself, bro, I am arguing something that'll benefit you right. that has nothing to do with, with who the council chair is. That's purely a policy position. Um, it's not a, a crazy position. Like it's, it's been very well outlined. Right. Um, it is irrelevant that I'm paid to do this job. And, and you're absolutely right. There's, there's been a backlash against experts, but it's really anti-intellectualism. Um, and I, I blame social media for this because right. suddenly all of the, the jerks who have been tired of, of experts and intellectuals saying one thing, they get a platform that they have mm. equal footing. They can, they can make a website just as easily as you know, sure. NASA and, and they can suddenly spout whatever trash they want. And because it's on the internet and because a lot of people aren't, aren't necessarily sophisticated users of the internet, if they put a .org behind their, their website name, they can claim to be experts on a, on a certain subject. So, so part of it is anti-intellectualism that spurned a whole bunch of fake experts, quote-unquote experts, talking about stuff. And then so many people turn on the news, and depending on what your political ideology is, um, you can find an expert who says one thing or an expert that says another thing. It's, it's degraded what it means to be an expert in a field. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's sort of become expertise by opportunism. Um, and, and I get it. I get why there's a skepticism because when people, you can find somebody to say whatever you want. Well, but, it along that, but along those lines, sorry to cut you off, but that's why this whole how confident am I in my position now becomes relevant. Mm. Right? Because if like, okay, we don't really know anyone's an expert in anything, then just how confidently can you spew your rhetoric? And so like, oh, well, I'm going to, and, and, and it also ties into tribalism. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's the bias towards, what's, it's not normalcy bias, but it's um, basically position bias, mm. right? Position bias, which is what Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have absolutely plugged into. And it's become completely toxic in our entire society is this, okay, we're going to try to fracture people into as small a niche as possible. So then therefore, therefore, and everyone else is against whatever is not part of their little niche. And, and I feel, and mine's more feel good than yours is. And so then therefore, you know, I can then shoot holes at you and say like, oh, well you're just da 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 because. And, and, and we've also lost the dialogue. Mm. Think about, like that guy, just real quick, that guy, he, just because he's after you, he gets to throw a couple darts at you and you go on. But it's, what if we actually had a conversation back and forth like this? 
right, is, is I think about like the tax bill. Even the tax bill that you're talking about, there was no debate, right? It's a bill that's put forward. The way that the council is run, and I'm not saying this is bad, it's just the reality of it. Each member gets a certain amount of time to ask questions. They then get to state how it is that they feel, and then they vote. Or, you know, it goes in the back, you know, goes back for revisions, and then it comes out again. There's no, you know, Keani, like, you know, I don't know, Yuki Lei, who was against it, asking Keani questions and debating the validity of, is this change in the code going to accomplish what it is that you say that it's going to accomplish? Yeah. Right? Which is, see, that's where you go to. You went to the, the, that part of going like, okay, listen, this change isn't going to actually do what it is that you think that it's going to do. It's going to do this other thing. But that debater conversation doesn't happen. Yeah. Except for three minutes at a podium, and then you're done. And if you get questions. and think, If you get questions. Think yeah. about any of the times that, that you've testified. I, I can say this is true about the times that I've testified. Generally speaking, it's the people who are more likely to agree with me that are going to ask me the questions. Yep. And I think that that's a huge, um, that, that's a paradigm that needs to be flipped on its head. If, if you're one of the folks on the council panel that, that thinks I'm wrong while I'm testifying, you're the one that should be asking me questions. Because to, to all of us, our positions are clear. But if our positions are clear to ourselves, then how could somebody possibly be disagreeing with us? So you need to talk to the people you disagree with. The people that, that you agree with, you already agree with them. You, you've got that common ground. If you think I'm, I'm wrong for going against this tax bill that you are so adamantly trying to push forward without any public support, then you need to ask, why does this well-educated guy who's paid to sit and think about these things think that I'm wrong if I think I'm so right? And that question, those, those questions aren't coming. Now it's, this guy testified this way, I'm not gonna meet with him. Well, and, and, and see, and that goes back to what you, know, you and I have talked about before as, as far as, for one, yeah, is I don't wanna have the conversation. And this isn't directed towards, I, I know that you and I are both are not talking specifically about anyone in particular, but just in general, the dynamic of I don't want to have a conversation with people that I disagree with mm. is just it's terrible. Just, that's bad for society. It's negligence. Oh, good word. It is negligent, especially if you're a policymaker, especially yeah. if, you, if you're making decisions to say, hey, listen, I don't want you to convince me I'm wrong or I don't want you to show me that I'm incorrect is actually it is negligent. That's actually a good word. Yeah. There's a Game of Thrones quote where uh, they're talking about negotiating with enemies. And um, I think it was like Tyrion Lannister goes, well, we don't make peace with our friends. Right. You don't need to. Right. Right. No. Right. And so, yeah, and more and more. And, it's, and again, I, I have to say that it's, it's societal-based and it's spurned or fed by social media, you know, more and more. And the other part that's really interesting that, that I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear because... You've gotten, and we've talked about this, you've gotten more personal and direct vitriol spewed at you than I ever did. Um, and part of it is you've, you've actually had to take on more personal and challenging topics than I did when I had the job. And that is this dynamic of um, 
for one, how do you handle that? Like, right? Because I know mm. for me, like, cause, you know, I've gotten my own fair share. Trust me. You know, even at planning commission, you know, somebody come in and say something about me or, you know, you see whatever. Might be. So one, how do you how do you just sort of handle that when it's personal? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because folks who who are sort of key figures on the side that I've gotten vitriol for. Um, if you think about like, I'm friends with Autumn Ness. I'm, I'm friends with, with Michelle Del Rosario. I'm, I'm friends with, with people who are on that, that further left side of the spectrum. And I'm also friends with people who are on, you know, would be considered more establishment folks. I'm mm -hmm. friends with, with all of these folks. So when some, some guy who doesn't really keep track of things, but his wife dragged him out to go testify and he's fired up about, you know, injection wells, even though he hasn't read any of the materials or whatnot, when that guy you know, pulls me aside in chambers and calls me a liar and says that everything I just said is a lie. In my mind, what, what I do is I just say back to him, what did I lie about? Right. And, and it's, it's that, that, you know, if you want to make fun of the way I dress, fine, man. Like, okay, go for it. I've, men I've, in suits. Yeah, men in suits. If you, want to, if you want to call me a liar, well, I know I'm not a liar. So, so that's not, that's not going to hurt me too bad. That'll, that'll hurt me because I am a sensitive guy, right. like, you know, and I, I do care about, about what people think about me. But ultimately, when, when it comes down to it, um, even the people that disagree with me generally can't really attack my character because I'm not going out and doing anything that's detrimental right. um, or, or embarrassing or, or wrong. Like, I'm, I'm really a, a pretty mundane, mild-mannered person overall. So... Just reminding myself, like, whatever the criticism is, it doesn't matter. My, my family and my friends, that's, that's what matters. And they, right. they still support me. Right. Um, and and that's, that's really how I cope with it. I just don't let it stick to me too much. And also, it, for folks who might not know what I look like, I mean, I doubt there's anybody listening to this that hasn't seen me. Mm -hmm. um, I very much look Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, like that's undeniable. Sure. I did the 23 in me. I got like 17%. Um, so, so it's in there and my genetics somehow, it made me, you know, dark with a big beard and, and you know, I'm, and being in a military college in South Carolina, mm. looking like a, an Arab mm. during, you know, Desert sure. Storm Part Du and, right. and, you know, our war with Afghanistan and also being a Yankee. Um, from the north in, in, in oh, the right. Citadel, I have been called some of the most vile things and been treated with mm. just utter disdain, sure. like to a level that, that nobody on Maui could ever match. I mean, sure. like the, the things that I've been called and people, you know, nobody hits me here. I, I, I got hazed at, at the Citadel. Like I can handle that. <laughs> but where I'm kind of going with that though, which is interesting that you bring up, nobody hits you is but what we're talking about is violence it's is because if you just think about there's diff, two different ways of being violent right is there's the very easy one which is i'm just going to go punch you yeah right there's that kind of violence and then the other kind of violence because and it's based in a certain element of hatred right or frustration or you know if i want to put my my new ag hat on it's just like there's a lack of love Right. There is an absence of love. And so then therefore there is this fight that happens and there's this, you know, abuse. Personal attacks 
name calling, reputation destruction, these things, it's equally as violent. It's just a different form of it. It's a different form of attack. You know, as cavemen, we just bonked each other on top of the heads. Now what we do is we try to attack each other verbally mm. and, and, and character destruction and attacks online and all those other things. It's, it's just, it's, so it's really interesting. It's just, I mean, in a way, that guy that gets up after you and says, oh, so, in a way, what he did is he just kind of, he pricked you verbally. You know, so that's anyways, that's, I just have been sort of swirling with that, too. And I just find it to be very interesting that it's like it's kind of accepted, though. Mm. Bullying online is kind of accepted. The online stuff. I mean, I, I think it, I said this in our last interview um, when the tables were turned, which is I think Facebook is just a cesspit. Largely. It totally is. Um, Absolutely. I think social media is it's terrible for public discourse. I think it's an echo chamber. You find right. the voices that you want to find. Yeah. Um, I, so, and and I don't participate in it. Like you, you won't find right. me commenting on you know Maui undercurrents. You won't find me commenting on on access denied. Like any of those those Maui Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. I'll check them out. They're great for for information and insight and to to get a, a glimpse of what the pulse of of Maui is. But I tell you. Even if you go on the Hawaii subreddit, so if you go on Reddit and you, you go on the Hawaii subreddit or the Maui subreddit, what you'll find is when people are anonymous, mm -hmm. the way that they view a lot of issues oh. are very different than, than what they're saying on when their names are there with Facebook and whatnot. Sure. So that's why it, it's, it's dishonest in a, lot of, in a lot of what's on the social media, but... I don't. I don't. I'm not going to go as far as to, to reference it as violence, though. Louis C.K. actually did a great bit. He was talking about his daughters growing up with this, and and how we're losing empathy. Yes. You know, because you know when you were in third and fourth grade, and you're on the playground, and you went over to that kid, and you're like, "You're fat," you know, and then suddenly that kid, like you see, you know, he or she, like how it hits them right and you see how you your words have affected that person and you go like oh well maybe i shouldn't do that or maybe you're just an asshole and you do it even mm. more because you like the fact that you're you know creating this but you but there's a certain level of empathy that you get you call this kid fat and they cry and you go like oh there's a little something that you, you kind of feel but when you text it you're fat there's no empathy. It's just like, oh yeah, mm, that yeah. felt good. I just called someone fat, you know? And so we're just, this vile cesspool as you called it, which is accurate, I think, is it's it's removing empathy. And it's not, it's not and even as adults, no empathy. Mm. Honestly, I think it's been worse for adult empathy than for kid empathy. Um, Probably. I, I meet a lot of like hmm. the I generation folks you know, I, I've, not a lot. I'm not meeting that many teenagers, but volunteering with like Juliao, you meet some of their students that, that are involved in their programs. And mm -hmm. They're teenagers or, or you know, friends uh, and colleagues who have, have teenage kids. And that generation is like super empathetic and kind. Like I, yeah. I've, I've mm. had some kids tell it's me good like, to know. <laughs> like they're, they're watching movies that we grew up with. Like think about like Back to the Future or something like that. Mm -hmm. And a character like Biff, which is sort of uh, commonplace, 
it, it wouldn't resonate with, with teenagers today because those guys aren't popular in high school anymore. Well, and they don't exist really. Yeah. They're not tolerated anymore. I mean, and I think the, the internet in a lot of ways has made the world open up for folks. Like think when I was in, in high school, mm -hmm. Um, in an elementary school, like the, the most common insult was calling somebody gay or fag mm, or something right, like that. Right, right, right. And now I talk to teenagers and they would not dream of, of doing that. And I think about like how different my life would have been in the lives of, of all the kids that I grew up with if that wasn't thrown around as though it was like a slur, if it was just like it is now where it's just another way of life right. where, where that's acceptable. How many more lives would have been happier and healthier if, 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 the the common lexicon accepted who they were right and i think that that in some ways the internet showed the world like hey there's a lot more people here and and you you groups that are are a bit more scornful and hateful you're not as powerful your numbers aren't as high um but it's also it that's true and dot 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 i think there's another part of it is the pendulum's also swinging super far the other way, mm. right? So, like, you had Biff, who was just the big moke asshole that just beat everybody up. And then we made right? him president. And so, and, and yeah, we made him class president because, oh, God, we all wanted to be, No, you we know, made him president president. Oh, we made him president, yeah. <laughs> but now there's this other part, though, where, okay, we can all gang up on Biff. Yeah. So, in a way, Biff's getting beaten up. In, in a different way. And that's kind of where like, okay, you're not going to call it violence or whatever. But in a way, there is that other thing over here on this other side, the pendulum swinging way over there. Well, it's the not allowing people to change. Well, it's also we, not We need to yeah. allow Biff okay. to change his mind. We need to allow Biff to evolve. So, so that's why I hate um, people getting deplatformed for stuff that they said five years ago. You know, like, I, I'm willing to bet that maybe Kevin Hart is an example. He had tweeted that, that homophobic thing, which was bad, you know, mm -hmm. by all means. Criticize Kevin Hart, you know, five years ago or whenever he made that tweet. Mm -hmm. But now, like, somebody's positions on things now should not be what they were five years ago. And I'm sure if we go back through the statements that you or I have made over the last, you know, decade and a half, we could find some stuff that we would not be proud of now. But society needs to allow folks to, to grow up and become the people that they are and, and not judge them as harshly on, for being the people that they were. Well, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I mm. agree with that. And, 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 you know, and that is correct. And the other part of it, though, too, that I look at is... It's okay for people to make mistakes too. Yes. Not only just like, okay, we got to give them an opportunity to change. Well, what if he doesn't change? You know, like my dad's, one of my dad's favorite characters is Archie Bunker, right? Where it's just like Archie Bunker was just, you know, he didn't hate anybody. He hated everybody. Mm. You know, and, and for me, this whole conversation, the canary in the coal mine for this whole part of our society is stand-up comedians. Because mm. stand-up comedians still use our differences as humor. Yeah. And we laugh. Yeah. And it's funny. And yet more and more and more, this, I'm offended by everything culture. I'm offended by Biff. I need to, Biff needs to change. I need to give Biff the opportunity to change. Is, as soon as comedians can't make comedy, 
about our differences and about the fact, I don't know, to use the word gay or fag or whatever it is. And if it's funny, if it gets, and not like, okay, in the deep south, you know, dropping the N-word, that mm. kind of humor. I'm just saying is that to me is the canary in the coal mine is as a society, when we can stop just talking about this stuff and celebrating the fact that we're not monochromatic and so, you know, what, on whatever level that it is, is that's the part that I'm looking at. Is that's the part where I'm going, okay, are we becoming completely totalitarian when comedy goes away? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's, that's a fear and you're right. But even now, like there's a comedian, Ari Shafir, and I was listening to an interview with him and he said that he loves it right now because comedy is dangerous again. It is because very dangerous. For you know, that's a great point. For the longest time, you, you know, everybody had their, their lane that they were staying in and, and there was, you know, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. And now we're at a point where if you cross a line, you could get in trouble. You know, you can get deplatformed, you can get attacked. And, and that danger right. is sort of so tantalizing to comedians. And you're getting some really great comedy right now because they're really Dave playing Chappelle. with that line that's dangerous. Right, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Right, Dave Chappelle's kind of like what Richard Pryor was back in the 70s. Yes, yeah. Right, where Richard Pryor was saying stuff that was like, oh my gosh. And quite honestly, is probably more than what Dave Chappelle did. But the problem is, is that once again, with social media, you got a whole bunch of idiots who aren't comedians, who suddenly think that they can be, who are saying all sorts of vile and uh, stupid agreed. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's yeah. not funny. That's, it's, it's, it's passive aggressive. It's different than yeah. like someone who is a skilled comedian that, that, that I mean, it's, it's a craft that, quite honestly, I love. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. I had a good friend of mine that actually... When I was living in San Francisco, he was actually trying to become a stand-up comedian. And so just like, you know, we're saying there's st certain skills, like learning how to look at the world as a lawyer. Yeah. And how you could think like a lawyer. There was this whole way with, because he was my roommate, I got to see like comedians, stand-up stand comedians. Now, not just comedians, but stand-up comedians have to look at the world and process the world in a particular way. To, and, then, and then there's this way with, like, you have to say a bit, maybe a couple of times and it bombs. Mm. And then you learn how to frame that bit in a way that actually is funny. Um, and so, so yeah, maybe that first time you say it, it is offensive and it's yeah. not funny. Um, but when you get the guys that are good and they're saying stuff and it just, it's pointed and, and it makes people laugh because it's just like, oh, it's true. Now it yeah. may be offensive to certain people, but it's like, but no, but that's, that's actually ironic funny. It, yeah. it's, it, it, there is humor in that. I think, you know, with, with politics, with comedy, with everything, the key is to take things in the spirit in which they're intended. Mm. Right, right, right. And we lose that. And yeah. when, when people disagree with me, that's another way that I cope with, with some of the vitriol. Mm -hmm. it's, it's I take it in the spirit in which it's intended. Sure. Which you think that I'm bad, so, so you're trying to fight bad. So it's actually coming from a decent place. Kind of like I, I joke about well-natured racism that I get, you know, when somebody comes mm. up to me, you know, oh, Jason, you're looking very Aladdin today. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to get upset or offended because it's well-natured. Like you're trying to that's bond actually, with me. That's it's actually a, funny. It's a compliment. It's right. funny. Aladdin is very handsome. He's the hero of the story. He didn't say I look like Scar. He didn't say right. I look like Jafar. He <laughs> said, you look like Aladdin, man. That's good. 
So, so like I get, I take it in the spirit in which it's accepted. I could just as easily make myself a martyr and talk about, well, oh, I'm so offended and I'm being attacked and I can't do this job being attacked. But what does that serve? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And see, and that's the part that is to celebrate our differences. Yeah. It's just like, you look different than me. Like even the way your beard grows in now, I'm like, look at these, like, and you got this quaff going on right now. It's like, you do look very Aladdin right now, but but like why you know why didn't can we not say that? Like yeah. maybe I had thought that I don't know. Maybe I had that, but it's like oh I couldn't say that because he'll be offended. I'm like well when are we going to just start celebrating the fact that we're all different? But you by know? the same token, if somebody is offended, I think on the other side we need to to allow for that, and we need to Agreed. we need to say you know what that I'm not going to double down now. I'm not going to say Jason's a jerk. I'm going to say. That, that joke didn't land too well. Maybe next time, I just won't, won't talk about his personal appearance. And, and as, as a father of a three-year-old, that's the one, one of the main things that I want to be able to teach my daughter, mm. is that ability to communicate that, right? Instead of saying, I need a safe space, and you're, you know, you're offensive, and so then therefore you have to change, is going, no, how can I then, you know, for one, is it me that's being offended or am I offended by s for somebody else, which yeah. that's a whole other conversation that we could have. But like, you know, if, if I were to roll in and, and con contextually it was more of a barb than good natured, for you to be able to say, mm, that kind of hurt Lawrence, or whatever way with which you can yeah. communicate it back to where then I then can get empathy rather than, okay, you just turning the light switch on or off, like, oh, it's funny, or I'm offended. Mm, and like, we're not friends anymore. Right, there's a I whole bandwidth Lawrence. between those two things yeah. that we can do. I'm a tweet, Lawrence is a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe that there's he's... That bandwidth, you're right. It's a spectrum of reaction. And we have responsibility on both sides of the spectrum to, to have compassion for the person who might be making the, the sour comment and have compassion right. for the person who might take the comment that was well-intended in a different way and to, to try and meet and, and understand why did they feel that way? Right. Why did I feel my way? How can we, we get to a place where we both feel okay? Um, and, and that responsibility isn't just on, on one side of the spectrum or on the other side, it's both of us. And, and even the original con, cause you're right, there is responsibility, right? And part of that responsibility is, you know, if you're a happy, well-adjusted, truly confident, truly true confidence, like real confidence, not like, okay, I'm gonna just be an asshole confidence, is I think that naturally those good natured things come out. Yeah. You know, is, is if you're a good human being, you don't say asshole things. Generally not. No. You know, I mean, I mean, if, yeah. I mean, we're all gonna trip up here and there, but it's like, it's funny, I, anyway, I had a whole three-year-old versus three-year-old thing and, and it's like, if you're nice, if you're nice as a person, as a human being, it encompasses this whole other thing to just, rather than, oh, we're just nice is a quality that is isolated and siloed by itself and it doesn't include, no, it inc to be nice, there's a whole, like you said, the word responsibility. There's this whole other mishigash that's gotta come together yeah. for one to just be nice. And unfortunately, social media doesn't, no, it doesn't foster that. No. So I'll tell you what is, you know, you and I always can sit here and talk a hundred times over. So I'm going to get to our questions and quite honestly printed this thing out so small. 
<laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to be able to read. But so here's what I want to do, though, is I want to read because you know what the questions are. So in a way, um, I'm going to read you the question, but then I'm also going to kind of follow up with a tweak on the question. Okay. So you have to kind of come up with something a little bit more off the cuff, too. So um, as we're winding down, the, you have your, uh, what is it, your five questions that you always ask. So um, the first one is, what book would you recommend? I would recommend a book called Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Saslow. Mm. It is the story of uh, a young leader of the white nationalist movement who goes to college and makes friends with a couple of Jewish guys who have patience for him. And they kind of just through interaction demonstrate to him where his, his flaws in logic are. And, and they break, they ultimately break through and this guy, a real person, Derek Black, um, he, Derek Roland Black, and I think now he's Roland Black, something like that. Um, he totally gave up on, on white nationalism and he, mm. was, he was sort of set to be the person to take over the movement. His godfather is David Duke. His father is oh, the wow. guy that started. So this is a real story. Yeah, this is a true story. Cool. Um, his his father is the guy that started the white nationalist website Stormfront. Uh, this young guy Derek is the one who created the sanitized white nationalist language that really helped the 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 darker portions of the conservative movement rise up. Hmm. So so he found a way to to take away the N word and still keep the hate hmm. and. Um, and it's just, it's such a great story, once again, about compassion and learning compassion, um, how education can free somebody from, from the, the imprisonment of, of hatred. Wow. Yeah, cool. it's, it's a beautiful book, and it's, it's one of the best books that I've read in years. And so I, that's one of the books that I send to people as gifts. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> do they take it as like, oh, what are you saying? My mom did not take it well. She, she are you calling me a racist? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, she, that's what she said. <laughs> she, she didn't tell this directly to me, but you know, my brother called her around Christmas time, and she's like, yeah, and your brother sent me this book about a racist Nazi, and what is he trying to tell me? What is he saying to me? Am I a racist? Does he think I'm a racist? And uh, I had to I call her, and I said, Mom, I heard that you were upset about the book. I sent it to a bunch of people. Right. <laughs> I, was, I was like, this is this is just the best book that I read this year and I wanted to share it with you. That's, that's all. Yeah. She's like, oh, okay, I'll read it. You know? okay. Did she read it? You know? I don't think she's read yeah, it. Maybe I don't know if she will. But. And I don't know if I segued very smoothly from like a conversation to suddenly these questions, but it is, just sort of is what it is. So based on that first question, though, what book would you recommend? What book would you say that you read impacted your life the most? Oh, man. You know, you know, I read this book called Buddhism Plain and Simple, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I read Siddhartha. Mm -hmm. And probably those two books together are really close to being the Re most impactful. Because you read them together, so it's like yeah, double and, whammy. And that really um, helped, helped me become a more compassionate person. And like around the same time, I read The Four Agreements, which we talked about mm -hmm. last time. And... And so, so those were hugely impactful, but maybe to go back even further, maybe The Great Gatsby. Because cool. I, I, when I read it in high school, 
I totally misinterpreted the, the moral of the story. Mm. And I was like, Jay Gatsby's this great character. That's when I started going by Jay instead of Jason. Mm. I was like, here's this guy who made himself. Mm. He, he was really the self-made man. And, and he, he did it all. And for what other reason than, than to get the woman that he loved? Mm. Um, and it, and it didn't dawn on me that not being authentic and turning yourself into something else is sort of what they're warning against in the book, <laughs> that it doesn't turn out well for Gatsby. Spoiler alert. Um, but <laughs> so, so but, but that really, that helped me. That was, I read that around the same time as the speech from my dad about going off and, and cool. rowing with the gods and so. So what's guaranteed to make you smile? When my wife clears her throat, she sounds like a Muppet. And I think it's the funniest <laughs> thing on earth. Well, then obviously you can mimic that yeah. thing, too. <clears throat> that's that's a, a really good Can you do thing. her voice, too? Oh, no, I can't. I just, okay. No. No. <laughs> That'll only be insulting. It won't turn out for me. Um, so, so that, and then um, when I feed my dog chips, that crunch of my dog eating that's chips is hilarious to me it makes me we didn't get into your dog i love my dog yeah yeah we could save that for next time okay uh, <laughs> um well that's where i was i guess is going to make you smile is so tell tell uh tell us a, a quick make you smile story about your dog then first your dog's name is pippa pippa yeah uh, as in in is, is that named after something? Is that you know we we had a dog in Uganda named Sybil. We really liked British names. We named her after a character from Downton Abbey, uh, okay. which is a great show if you haven't seen it. And Pippa, um, it was around the time of like I guess Kate Middleton was was present in the zeitgeist, and her sister Pippa Middleton was at the wedding. Yeah. And Pippa was just a good English name for for a good English pooch. There you go. Um, and so so we named her her Pippa after Kate Middleton's sister. And um, she's just a, a wild beast. So, so taking her hiking is hilarious because she just will rip through the woods and oh, cool! What even kind of care. dog? She's Whippet, Greyhound, Healer, Pointer, and Pit. So, wow. yeah, she's a hunting poi dog. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. So, quick, quick Pippa story then. <sighs> Oh man, most of the time the stories are just about her her getting out of it and me having to chase her around my neighborhood and just, you know, like just, my underwear and, and a wife beater just <laughs> running in people's backyards. Excuse me, I gotta get my dog, you know. There's a visual, the uh, the Middle Eastern guy and a wife beater chasing Yeah, dog, exactly. Right? It's like <laughs> Oh gosh. Uh, let's see. What's something you've changed your mind on? Um, something I changed my mind on. You know, I had, I, I used to be a pretty religious person. Um, and, and now I'm not religious. Um, and, and that's probably the, the biggest change in my mm. life. And, and that just came largely from learning about other, uh, religious and philosophical beliefs and, and recognizing that there are a lot of truths and that nobody has the corner market or the the market cornered when it comes to right. to the way to heaven or understanding what is beyond the rest of us, um, you know what is beyond this life. So, so that's probably the number one thing that I changed my mind on. Hmm. Um, and and honestly, as a young man, that religiousness and being in the South. Um, I did not vote for for President Bush in in that election against John Kerry, hmm. but I think if I had voted, that's probably how I would have voted, 
because I was sort of brainwashed by my my youth being in this mm. this religious setting and also um, a very military minded setting. You know, my parents were, were service members and I went to a military college and I was there during that election. I was I was at the Citadel and um, I, I think that my political ideology shifted drastically once I got to know guys that came back from Iraq. Mm. And that was the big moment where I was like, this is terrible. Mm. All of this rah-rah war stuff is a lie. Like it yeah. really dawned on me, like these guys are broken people and, right. and some of these guys will never be the same and their lives were ruined. And that got me examining everything that goes along with with that part of the political spectrum and that was that was that was eye-opening mm. um, so so I became really sort of anti-war after getting to know a bunch of guys that came back from Iraq so my twist on the question is gonna be what does it take to change your mind meeting with people talking mm. with people mm -hmm. um, you know knowledge Knowledge is, is really all that it takes. I'm not really dug in. I have, I have um, very firm, loosely held beliefs. So, so if, you can, if you can show me, you know, this is where you're wrong, mm -hmm. I'll listen to you. I want to be, be told when I'm wrong. Sure. Um, so, so really, it's just information. Cool. So what have you failed at and what did you learn from it? Failing the bar was my biggest failure, mm. and I learned, I learned that it was all my fault. And that was the biggest and most important lesson of my life, that it was all my fault, that mm. I couldn't blame anybody else for my failures. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I could have if I was reaching, you know, oh, this girl I was dating at the time, she drove me nuts, and oh, I had to pick up extra shifts, and that's why I didn't fail, you know, that's why I didn't pass this essay. But it was all me and that I needed to fail to learn how much control I had over my life mm. and that set me on a path of you know getting in really good shape setting goals for myself to attain um, reaching those goals that got me started with the you know making my bed every day keeping my room clean mm. um, it was that failure that set me on that path of you destroyed these things yourself mm. and you can rebuild these things yourself um, and you know reading about Buddhism and, and just the fact that all suffering you know that suffering is a part of life and that, that you are the source of your so sorrows mm -hmm. um, was, was hugely empowering and and that's what I learned from my failures that it was my fault and that it's all my fault what do you consider to be a failure what do you consider fail what, what is failure that's a great question. Failure, in the most basic sense, is not achieving an objective you set out for and, and not having some alternative level of success. So sometimes you, you set out for an objective and you fail, but it's not a failure overall because you, you realize, oh, I, was, I had the wrong goal. Mm -hmm. um, but when you, when you come away with something with, without your objective and without an alternative, that's that's really failure, and and if you can learn a lesson from it, then that turns the failure around. So, right. So lastly, um, what's one piece of advice that you're going to give the people listening? So my very practical advice mm -hmm. 
is floss. I know a lot of folks who don't floss. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I floss. feel different about my life when I'm when I floss and when I don't floss. Like wow. it it is impactful for me. Wow. But no no pun intended. Impactful. Yeah. <laughs> um so so that but that goes to a broader um take care of your business. Hmm. You you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the people you love to to take care of yourself. You know, be on top of your health so that you're not making other people concerned for you. Um, take care of your finances because your loved ones, you know, will rely on you at some point. And you, you need to, to not leave your, your world in a shambles if something happens to you. Um, eat, eat healthy just because making yourself healthier will make you more pleasant for everybody and that'll empower you to help others. So it's really that, that self care for the benefit of the world is is my piece of advice is handle your business and understand that that you have a responsibility to yourself and others to do so and also just approach people with compassion um, once again back to the the buddhism thing i'm not a buddhist but that that and now i'm, I'm reading a lot about hinduism um, mm -hmm. and and those two two philosophies really speak to me mm -hmm. because part of it is even if I'm not inclined to help others for the sake of helping others, the interconnectedness of the world means that if I do kindness to you, I'm actually doing kindness to myself. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if being philanthropic isn't for you, being selfish still requires you to approach others with kindness. It's your obligation. Right. And not just other people, but the world around you. you know, we're all one. And, and it sounds hippy-dippy, and a lot of people that know me probably wouldn't realize that I, I'm sort of, you know, kind of a hippie like that. But mm -hmm. I think it's important that we all approach each other with this understanding that you're just an extension of me. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Is, is, it's funny when you said floss in one word. I'm, rem I'm reminded of that one. Um, it's like a graduation speech that some guy is like the, the, the 50 pieces of advice or something like that, and one of them is just floss oh <laughs> i'm gonna have to try to find that now but it's like this graduation speech so um you you kind of answered my, my twist on it was going to be what would be your advice for yourself but it so sounds like that you have given yourself advice and you're actually following through i try yeah you know where it's just like you 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 i guess yeah i mean it's like say oh, okay this is the advice i'm gonna give others let's just say but it's like no i'm actually walking living proof of that yeah you need to it's it's so annoying when somebody gives you advice and they clearly don't follow it themselves <laughs> like we all have that like out of shape co-worker uh, that you know kind of well i'm actually not me like i'm i'm that's a bad example because now my co-workers are listening to this and they're gonna be thinking like am i the one you saw you're not the one i'm talking about i'm saying we all have that that person in our life that wants to give us medical advice but sure. they clearly don't have their their own stuff under control Sure. Or someone says, you need to be more compassionate. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a real drag when somebody doesn't follow their own advice. Yeah. Yeah. So, lastly, is there, uh, is there anything we didn't talk about that you were like going, you know what? I kind of wanted to get into this or that or say something about that. No. I mean, since there's all these people out here listening to learning all this stuff about you, um, What's what's is what's the one thing I guess? What's the big takeaway you want everybody to have about learning about Jay? Um, 
man, I want, I don't know. It's, it's so difficult. I, I think we covered pretty much everything that's worth covering. Um, you know, there, there are stories to tell, but, but maybe we got to make this an annual thing. Well, I, <laughs> I, you know what I think that we should do is, um, cause I think I told you, it's like my show's actually coming soon too. So it's like, I'm going to have you on my show is we, we've asked each other about like, say our, our history. Yeah. Oh, you know, who is Lawrence? Who's Jason? And, and, and that's part of that is just, okay, this is who my dad was and your dad and, and where I went to school and how many brothers and sisters we have and everything like that. But the part that I think that you and I get jazzed about when we start talking back and forth is the philosophical stuff, mm. you know, is whether it be, you know, the local twist on why the certain political bent is what it is here, not necessarily the argument for or against something, but just the dynamics. Like, you know, we talked about um, last time when you were interviewing me, the three-dimensional chess game and, and that sort of thing is, uh, I think, just the philosophical bent on life and even just to get into Hinduism and Buddhism. I think, I think we need to do follow-up um, interviews where, where I'm on your show and you're on mine. But you know what might be fun, too, if when we get closer to the elections, we start having, like, candidate breakdowns. Where, where uh, yeah. we get together and do that. Let's let's talk about that. My bladder's about to explode. Mine too. So let's, Perfect. let's end this. Thank you all for listening. I love you and take care. Any last words, Lawrence? Aloha. Aloha. Oh, wait, wait. Slower traffic. Please keep right. Great. Excellent. All right.